four, three, two, one. All right, we're live. What's up, man? What's up, dude? Nice. What's hilarious, folks? I have to tell you this. <laughs> I did a podcast earlier today, and he said, wow, it's your second for the day. He goes, impressive endurance. Do you know how fucking ridiculous that is for you to say? <laughs> this is a guy who walked across Antarctica. How many days did it take you? 54 days. By yourself. By myself. Trekking yes, across the fucking frozen tundra. It, that was an endurance feat of its own. Yeah, just no, back. No, that's uh, a real endurance feat. I'm just sitting down talking to people. <laughs> oh my god, you talked already for two hours. How do you do it? <laughs> two more hours. Here we go. Crazy. Yeah. Crazy. Yep. Yep. Dude, what the fuck were you doing? Just just getting back. Actually, still uh, still practically have the snow on my shoes. Yeah, I got back about a month ago. Fifty four day journey. First person in history to uh, cross the entire continent solo, unsupported. So no resupplies throughout the thing. No no aid. No wind. Kites. Nothing. Just me dragging a 375 pound sled across antarctica i can't believe it only took you 54 days yeah yeah that's it's so big <laughs> like look at antarctica on a map like how long do you think it would take you to walk across america well, you got so we Mountains. usually look at Antarctica on a map. This is hilarious. I have showed right. people a picture of Antarctica. You're a smart guy. You probably know this, but usually people see it on a, uh, a map projection because then it gets flat, yeah. right? Right. But it's actually circular. Yeah. Um, so I went from the edge of the Ron Ice Shelf to the Ro- uh, via the South Pole to the Ross Ice Shelf. So basically, kind of a diagonal across through the center and then back to the other ice shelf. What uh, do the flat earthers think about <laughs> your, your your traversing this this area? Look, this uh, is what you did. This is how you there you it made is it. exactly. Yeah. So you yeah. went to the center of the fucking earth basically there you, you it went is to the top of the pole yeah bottom of the wow. earth you know standing down there holding everyone up on my shoulders wow so you were at the south pole and then you trekked over to the to the ice shelf on yeah. the other side it's wow. funny you say about the flat earthers though because all jokes aside i've been getting a lot of trolling on my instagram page from the <laughs> flat earthers i've got guys going like oh I, I was doing this speech the other day People are super nice, come up in the Q&A afterwards, want to shake my hand, take a picture, whatever. And this guy walks up in this real earnest look on his face, and he's like, so I really wanted to ask you, how is the hole? And I was like, excuse me? And he was like, you know, the hole at the center. And I was like, um, I, give me a little more. He was like, you know, like when you got to the edge. <laughs> And I was like, oh, man, like, you're really asking me this question right now. Ugh. Like, we are talking about this. I didn't quite know where to go with it. I was like, Ugh. yeah, there was actually, I, at least I didn't see the edge, and the curvature kept going, and I made it to the other side. It is such a strange thing to believe, but people do. And the, 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 people think people are trolling about that. And you know what? It, it actually started out. It's another 4chan thing, you know. Did you know that? It's well, I'm sure there was probably somebody who believed it before that, but it started off people were trolling on 4chan, then eventually people just started actually going, Hey, yeah, I bet it is flat. And then they started believing it, and videos, YouTube videos yeah. popped up. There's another YouTube video someone linked to me the other day, and I thought it had like I thought it had like a few hundred views, but it had 28,000 views. And it was these, all these guys debating, like, Colin proved that there's not a wall, like the wall, like there would be like Game mm. of Thrones at the edge of the world. There's yeah. this whole conversation. About I bet that. there's another 28,000 people. It's proved that Colin never actually went because we course. know he's a, a new world order shill well the other the other funny one was that we got a bunch on the instagram page i'm out there alone completely by myself but right. i want to share the whole story through my instagram to like share the journey with people inspire others to do whatever they want to do and i kept being like well i mean he's not out there alone he's taking pictures i was like the film crew and it's like 
guys, have you never heard of a tripod and a, and a timer? Um, have you never like, watched Survivor Man? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So it's so, some funny comments along those lines. So your your sled was 300 and how many pounds? 375 pounds to start. So basically, uh, food and fuel was the main, the main weight. So people, I called my project The Impossible First. That's sort of what I named the project because several people had That's tried. That's it right there? Yeah, oh my there God. it is. So not only are you walking, you're dragging this big ass heavy sled yeah yeah and fuck the, dude people so people have tried this uh you know going back a hundred years to Sh- Ernest shackleton saying if it was possible and then the last few years some really experienced polar explorers have given it a shot and one guy actually died less than 100 miles from the finish line um because of you know lack of nutrition and, and some challenges with the weather and things like that um but people called it you know people after that were like it's impossible and the reason people thought it was impossible was because you can't get resupplies, meaning if you fill your sled with food at a certain amount, you actually can't drag the sled anymore. So the whole mm. math equation really was figuring out just how much food and fuel I could put in the sled. The fuel melts the water, so melts the ice into water, essentially, and that equaled to 375 pounds. And to be truth, I could barely pull it on the first day. Like I, uh, One hour into getting dropped off, I'm dropped off completely alone out there in Antarctica. I planned this project for a year, you know, uh, and uh, I get dropped off, and after about one hour pulling through, 375 pounds sled through the snow it's minus 25 degrees out I'm cr- I'm crying I'm literally crying and the tears in my goggles are starting to freeze and I'm like oh my god so I pick up my satellite phone I call home to my wife Jenna who also creates and plans all these projects with me and I'm like babe uh, I think we named the project the right thing, uh, the impossible verse. Yep, uh, it looks like it might be impossible to keep Jesus. going. So I'm one hour into a thousand mile journey pulling a sled, told everyone I'm going to do this, and I'm already having those doubts pull up. But, uh, you know, fortunately, I was able to get a little bit further that day, and 54 hour days later, made it to the end. But. How far did you get in the first day? Well, it's funny because we show just show the map. I actually, you know, it starts on an ice shelf, which is basically the frozen sea ice. And there's an edge of that. That's the, where the continent starts. And so I have a waypoint on my GPS that marks that. So the plane that drops me off actually dropped me off on the ice shelf before the continent starts. And my first waypoint was kind of like the actual start. And so one hour in, I haven't even hit the real start. So when, oh, she, when I call her on the phone, she's like, because she knows the route. And she's like, well, how far are you from the first waypoint? Which is where the actual start is. And I'm like, it's. Point six three more miles. She's like, it's half a mile. You have a thousand more to go. Like, get to the first waypoint, you know? Oh, and I was like, okay, okay. So I, you know, rallied myself, got to the first waypoint, and then finally got in my tent that night and just kind of took a deep breath. I think I was just overwhelmed by the magnitude of it. I mean, imagine being a speck in the middle of Antarctica alone, these crazy temperatures, you know, all the excitement but fears of the journey ahead, um, and 375 pounds on my back. When the sleds, you know, when the snow's deep too and loose snow makes 375 pounds even, even heavier than if it's like light you know icier consolidated so yeah it was it was a rough start to say the least did you do any sort of test run pulling the sled anywhere else yeah, so the training element of it was pretty cool. So um, this was, I actually set a few other world records previous to this in the mountains and things. We could talk about it if you want. But the uh, the last year, as I really committed to this project, I um, yeah decided to start, obviously start training specifically for this. Um, I needed to put on about 20 pounds of muscle. I'm usually six foot 165, pretty lean. I'd raced triathlon professionally for a number of years and realized I needed to be a bit bigger because I was going to lose so much weight. 
Um, and I found uh, an amazing coach in Portland, Oregon, where I live, this guy named Mike McCastle. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but I know you've had, you've had David Goggins on your show, yeah. I take it. So um, Mike actually surpassed David's pull-up record. Mike did 5,804 pull-ups in 20 hours. Um, I think Goggins did about 4,000, which are both insane to me because so I can do like... another 1,000? And he was wearing, Mike was wearing a 30-pound weight vest. Too. No! Yes. <laughs> Just to add insult no! to injury. Uh, Mike McCastle, absolute, absolute legend. So anyways, Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> he did 5,000 fucking chin-ups with a weight vest on? Dude, I barely can do 10. I, I'm right there with you, man. Like, I, pull-ups Fuck. are not... I've got some other physical strengths, but the pull-up department is not not my strong that suit. That is fucking insane get this too just just because i gotta i gotta big up my man for a second that's his fourth road right he also pulled a f-250 truck 20 miles across death valley uh <laughs> in a harness so i'm trying to look for the best guy to teach me how to pull heavy shit oh my god you got the guy <laughs> i found the guy i was like Fuck. damn this yeah, is I the just guy love that there's people like that out there that just make you feel like such a <laughs> pussy uh oh and my god the great, and the greatest thing about mike you know big strong jacked dude but like super soft-spoken she's like he's like yeah i did those pull-ups it was cool like so anyways i he went basically to- fucked with that record so hard <laughs> he could die and like come back to life and li- live a whole nother life and no one's ever gonna do it yeah so anyways my training he w- he was the guy I went to him trained out of this gym in portland uh where, where he trains out of and he just he got me bigger he got me stronger but he also did all sorts of badass crazy stuff i mean this is a physical challenge but it's more of a mental challenge than anything so he had me you know my hands in ice buckets doing planks to get my heart rate jacked up and then he'd be like get out of the water then i pull my hands out of the ice buckets do you know i'd be a seated squat against the wall but then he would hand me legos and so my hands are frozen my feet are in ice buckets now in a plank my heart rate's you know 190 and he's like put this lego set together so the de- dexterity of my fingers the mental acuity to Look pull this all together there he is <laughs> this guy what a fucking <laughs> savage this guy is yeah he, and he, he did that for veteran suicides yeah exactly wow. so he he's got really really important missions behind all of his projects he calls them 12 labors and over his life he's trying to set 12 world records and various Jesus things Christ there's uh, people that are just they're just designed different yeah yeah so he's the man but like this crazy training he came up with for me that was like the ice the the water the mental acuity all of this was like he was like yo you're gonna be in antarctica if your tent blows away when you're pulling it up you're dead like the stakes are that high 50 60 mile per hour winds like right. absolutely crazy um so did you ever have an issue like that where you thought the tent could blow away um i think i don't know if you have it there's a clip on my instagram i posted a few days ago of me of me setting up the tent in a minus 80 degrees out ah! 60 mile per hour winds ah! um it's pretty gnarly but yeah i mean there was one time when the tent almost did blow away from me yeah there's this one there's one other one this is me getting in the tent looking like an absolute disaster when i get help with audio but that's me uh that's me <laughs> Whoa, you're pulling ice out oh, of your eyelashes. I got eyelashes. caught out in a massive storm. And I just... So hard to get the tent up. I didn't know if I was going to be able to get it up or I was going to have to just keep walking. Jesus. I'm in the tent now. Hoping these tent poles hold. Man. That was really intense. How do you stay warm in that tent? 
So its average temperature is about minus 25, minus 30 uh, in Antarctica. But like I said, when the wind jacks up, uh, I don't know if there's that other clip of me setting up the tent, but if you get a chance to see that, it's, you know, it's about can be about minus 80 outside, which it's hard to wrap your mind around that. But I've tried to put it in perspective by saying, I could take a cup of boiling water and throw it in an air and it immediately turns to ice. Like that's 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 yeah. the temperature we're dealing with. Yeah, this is me trying to uh, keep the tent poles together. Usually you'd have someone else to hold on to it, but I'm alone. I'm completely alone out there. So this is me struggling with my tent, just trying to keep it up. I've got it, you know, tied down to my sled there, um, just battling, battling the winds. And the stake, like I said, the stakes are high. If that blows away, I don't have a spare tent. I've got no extra weight in my, my sled to hold oh. spare stuff. So it's 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 do or die, quite literally, uh, in a moment like that. Did you have a patch kit? I had a couple things repaired, a sewing kit, a patch kit, stuff like that. But if the tent itself or the tent poles, you know, ripped oh. apart pretty much fuck dude and, and also you have to set up your tripod and film this <laughs> yeah. and then press stop and go back inside and how are you keeping these batteries juiced up no this solar? is this is the film crew man that was following oh, me yeah, around yeah, yeah. <laughs> that yeah. right of the flat out film, film crew yeah they're <laughs> near the ice wall the uh no uh it was basically i had to keep the uh, batteries warm by keeping them right against my skin so i'd keep the batteries right against my skin my body weight would keep it warm and the second i wanted to take it out i'd pull it out real quick hit play and then it would you know usually last a minute or third enough to get a little clip or something like that you couldn't just let it run but then it would you know completely freeze even a full battery would be you know on zero battery by pretty quickly were you using solar panels to charge it yeah so one crazy cool thing about Antarctica that time of year is it's 24 hours of daylight and so the mm. sun never sets so even when I'm in my tent in the middle of the night eye mask earplugs to kind of pretend like it's nighttime but 24 hours of daylight so solar panels um, keeping everything charged cameras wow. phone batteries all that and are you traveling with are, are you using GPS yeah, so I had some waypoints, uh, the GPS waypoints that kind of led my path to the South Pole, et cetera, but mostly actually using a compass. So I'd look at my GPS maybe once every week or something like that just because to get the of bearing. the juice factor? It's actually just easier. Because, so I basically had like a harness on front of me that would have my GPS or my, my compass kind of off my chest more mm. or less because some of the clips we saw, the sun's out, but actually more than half of the time the clouds would come in. So it'd be just complete and utter whiteout. I couldn't even see one step in front of me. And and so I'd actually have to just stare down at my compass, keep it on this bearing. And so imagine you can't see anything, can't see one step in front of you. I'm pulling a you know 300 pound sled, 12, oh. 13 hours per day, uh, not listening to anything really, complete dead silence, um, and just staring at this compass bearing all day long. So, <laughs> damn, dude, are you going crazy at all? I mean. The mental side of it was by far the most interesting side of it for me. Um, you know, have a, a lifelong endurance athlete, but really kind of an exploration into the mind is what it was for me and why I was curious about it. So spending all this time in silence, I've done, are you familiar with uh, uh, Vipassana meditation? These ten, yes. So I've done a couple of these 10-day silent meditation retreats before this, which is 10 days, no reading, no mm -hmm. writing, no eye contact, um, kind of dove into that piece of it. But 54 days alone in Antarctica and complete <laughs> silence was, was next level of that for sure. God damn, dude, that is so fucking impressive. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't believe that you did that. Now, when you're looking down and it's an utter whiteout and you're looking at your compass and you're dragging this shit behind you, like, are you doing anything in your mind? Are you, like, singing songs? Are you... What are you doing? Um... There's a couple different things, but really what ended up happening is I started to be able to trigger these flow states. So... 
you know, as a lifelong professional athlete through different capacities in my life, you know, I've tapped into that. You know, I was a swimmer when I was a little kid. So swimming laps in a pool, sometimes I would like kind of just tap into this like timeless space where, you know, maybe 30 minutes would go by in, in two minutes or something like that. But I never really knew how I got there. Just would sometimes tap into it, sometimes not, you know, the zone, flow state, whatever you want to call mm-hmm. that. But in Antarctica, I went in with this sort of attention about intention of exploring that space in my mind. And so as I got more and more into these whiteouts, into these compass in staring at this compass staring at this expansive landscape i started to find ways to actually trigger that flow state in my mind and so it got to the point where i could for several days at a time be in this deep flow state so you know my day was about 17 hours every day between getting up boiling my water getting out of my tent in those crazy conditions packing my sled dragging it for 13 hours setting my tent back up in these storms but i got into this sort of sequence of being so present with each step each next sequence that it ended up being in this really timeless space baseless place in my mind of true high performance that was almost like the most deepest peaceful meditative state that I can possibly imagine it was it was very profound and beautiful uh, to get there in my mind wow now, are you, are you boiling this water in your tent? Like, uh, wh- how are yeah, you doing? So you my using tent, a jet boil? Yeah, so a, kind of a, a slightly different white gas fuel stove. So not the canisters where you could throw away, but like gas that you could refill the stove, but a stove with fuel. Um, basically, the way my tent was, you saw the outer layer of the tent there. There's actually an inner part that's a tent so that there's a vestibule where basically there's snow inside the doorway, but not outside, outside. So Mm -hmm. I would shovel that snow from inside of the tent vestibule into my pot and be able to melt the water that way. Um, I drank about six liters of water uh, every single day um, when I was out there. It's a lot of snow, a lot of, and it takes a few hours to melt that. But people don't realize this, Antarctica is actually the largest desert in the world. Um, so it's actually very dry. It doesn't snow very often, but when it does, it of course never melts. And the South Pole is at 9,300 feet. So not only am I in this desert, but I'm at altitude doing this thing. (laughs) So, oh my God. Did you train at altitude? Did you use like one of those uh, tents to sleep in? or? Yeah, so this, uh, this gym that Mike and I train at, it's called Evolution Healthcare and Fitness in Portland. Um, they actually have an altitude room there. So that it's not oh. even a, a tent, but they actually have a full, a full room where you can, you know, it's got rolling machines, it's got treadmills, it's got all that simulated up to about 14,000 feet. How big is the room? It's about... 400 square feet high ceiling it's big I mean it's not like huge but but it's it's big enough yeah Yeah. it's like a proper room I've been in some of those tents before when I was racing triathlon many years ago a lot of people were starting to sleep in those tents but a lot of people have a hard time in them they get warm and stuff Mm -hmm. like that I know a lot of fighters use them as well Um, but but yeah it was pretty cool to have a full room that you can actually you know be in and move in properly um, for to simulate some of the high intensity stuff yeah and so it would take you hours every day to make your water yeah, I would say I was boiling water for about three, four hours per day. So about hour or two in the morning, hour or two in the evening. Uh, it takes a lot of energy to boil, you know, frozen snow when it's that cold out. Um, so you had to carry, I had to carry a lot of fuel. That was the other really yeah, heavy component of my Yeah, that's what I was going to say. That's like hundreds of hours of fuel, right? Yeah, so I took about uh, 17 liters of fuel. So that's whatever, six gallons or something like that. Uh, wow. How'd you know that that was going to be enough? <laughs> uh, I did some practicing beforehand. Um, I, I, in 2016, I did another world record project where I um, climbed the tallest mountain on each of the seven continents, the seven summits, as well as went to the North and South Pole, but much smaller polar expeditions a week, uh, basically crossing the last degree of latitude. 
And so in those expeditions, Alpha was on Everest during that time, Denali, et cetera, all of that in 139 days. Um, but I did that and that kind of helped me get a sense of it. But honestly, it was also best guess based on talking to people, different experts in the field, Ooh. you know, diving into that. But you never know. Is it going to be enough or too little? I, I erred on the side of too much. When you, when, you, when you finally got to the end, how much did you have left? So my final push, I actually, I woke up on uh, the morning of Christmas Eve, 24th of December this past year. And it looked, I was 77 miles from the finish. And I'd been going at that point, at the beginning of the trip, I was only going nine, 10 miles per day. Towards the end, I started going about 20, 25 miles per day. So I said, you know what? Like I'm about three days out. And then I thought to myself, maybe if I could push really hard these next two days, I could do it in two days, like two 15 plus hour days, like really get into it. And started looking at my fuel and food supplies and like they were pretty low. I had, I had enough fuel, a few, a few liters of fuel, but I actually only had about a day or two of food, like real substantial food left. Um, and so I woke up and I was like, all right, let's go for this. And in the actually deepest talk about flow states, that was the deepest flow state of my life. I woke up in one hour in that day. It's Christmas morning now. I wake up and I'm just locked in and I just came. I didn't tell anyone back home, didn't tell my wife who was tracking me. They had this GPS tracker where they could follow me. But I was just in my mind, I was like, you know what? Not, not three days, not two days. I'm going straight for it. And so I did a final 32 hour continuous push on day 54, oh. 77 miles straight, dragging my sled all the way to get to the finish line in one continuous push. No music, no nothing. Just like in my head, in this, in this crazy flow state of, 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 I don't know, high performance. Um, and it was, it was, a, it was a crazy final push to get there, but uh, made it right before the food and fuel ran out. Oh my God. <laughs> and then there's, there's no one there. Of course, like, right. you cross the finish line. You're like done this. No one in the world's ever done this. Applause. Nope. Like, audience no of zero. <laughs> and so what do you do when you get to the end? You said, uh, Hey, I'm done. Come get me. Yeah. Yeah. And how long so, does it take for them to come get you? It took me a week to get out of Antarctica. Totally. It took actually <laughs> me four days to get Fuck. out of there. Uh, but there's a crazy other component to this, which is, no one in the world had ever done this before. And like I said, a few really uh, talented people, some of the best explorers in the world had tried recently. One guy died. Um, and it just so happened, there's a really specific season when you can attempt this, but another guy was attempting this at the exact same time as me, um, a British a British guy who's uh, equivalent of a Navy SEAL, you know, British Special Forces. The living most experienced guy in Antarctica has actually pulled 3,000 plus miles in Antarctica now on various expeditions. And so we got dropped off one mile away from each other to begin this thing and um, obviously I was the first I, I did win this race head to head and at the finish line I waited for him for a few days because I wanted to congratulate him because he did ultimately finish but you can only imagine I went going back to that first hour where I was like it's impossible it was also like it's impossible and both by the way this Navy SEAL dude who knows more about Antarctica than me he's off and going <laughs> I can see him in the distance just like oh. leaving me in the dust um, but fortunately after day six I caught up to him you know I waved to him in this weird like passing of the torch moment like I was passing him and then I never saw him again until I finished and I finished about uh, 70 miles ahead of him about two and a half days ahead of him that's gotta suck <laughs> for him <laughs> imagine he's like I got this motherfucker I, I brought it home for America man you know thank you appreciate that we all we all appreciate that but still that's gotta suck for him yeah so I, I actually even though I finished and the first thing I could have kind of wanted to do i haven't had a i haven't had a shower right. i haven't i actually to save weight so i could get as much food and fuel in my sled i brought no extra clothes no extra pair of underwear like literally no extra Oof. pair of underwear no extra pair days. of nothing so where, I are you, where are you shitting out there <laughs> everyone wants to know this so let's just get it on the table i let yeah. thank you for asking um 
uh, basically, I, I describe that vestibule situation. So one side I cook in. Right. If the wind is calm, I get out of my tent, dig a hole, and, and you know, go shit in a hole, basically. Right. But when it's real windy, like those storms I just watched, like you're going to get frostbite if you try to, you know, bend over and pull your pants down when it's minus 80 out. Right. So in the vestibule of my tent, not the side I'm cooking on, but the other side where I'm still inside covered, I dig a hole in there. And that was my morning routine. Get up at 6 a.m., start boiling my water on one side of my tent, and it's not glamorous. <laughs> it's not, not a pretty thing. And to make, um, actually, to me, this is very cool, but also not glamorous. Um, Within one degree of latitude of the South Pole, so the last degree of latitude, 89 degrees, the South Pole is at 90 degrees. It's basically 69 miles or 60 nautical miles circumference around the South Pole. Antarctica being as pristine as it is, they have all these laws about environmental conservation, which to me is amazing being someone who just loves and is a great steward of the land. They actually say you can't even leave your human waste in holes here. Even though there's nobody out there, they're like, we want this to be completely protected area. And so... Yes, usually my sled was getting lighter most of the time because I was eating food every day and burning fuel. But in that last degree of latitude to the South Pole and crossing it, I was shitting in a bag, <laughs> wrapping it up and putting it in my sled and having to carry Ooh. it with me. So, um, yeah. Wow. It, that it, shows discipline. <laughs> shows well, something. A lot of people have been like, yeah, 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 put it in a bag. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> crazy assholes uh, no was, one's up there uh, who cares if i take a shit up there it was tempting but you know so i grew up in the going out in the outdoors and just this leave no trace principle that i you yes. know i really love and in particularly antarctica one of the things about antarctica it's one of those places where imagine you've traveled far and wide in your life and there's a few places at least in my mind where you just you can't put it into words until you've stepped off yeah. there and for me this is my second time in antarctica and both times you know this big cargo ship basically lands you on the continent and then you get in a smaller plane to get dropped off to where i needed to start on the edge of the continent but both times stepping off the plane i'm just shit eating grin ear to ear on my face because i just am like whoa what is this place even the second time seeing it i felt the way like my cheeks were sore because i was just smiling so big of just wow. the pristine beauty the blank canvas the i mean you look out on the land and you're like human footprints haven't touched 98% of the continent, something like that. I mean, it's untouched. And so, shitting in a bag, if I had to do that to do my part to uh, <laughs> keep it that way, uh, How I did many my bags part. of shit did you drag? In uh, the end, it was about... Th I reused the bag. So oh. <laughs> one per day for that section is about 120 miles. It took me, I don't know, a week or so to cover that distance. So, um, yeah, added, added weight to my sled rather than subtracting during that was the middle part of the journey right around the 30th and 40th day. Now, how did you calculate your nutrition? So the nutrition journey was actually fascinating. And to be honest, it, in my opinion, people said, well, well, how come other people died trying or why did other people not be able to do it? Because one other guy ran out of food. And so when I was looking at this journey, you know, we, again, we were calling it the impossible first, like, how am I going to make the impossible possible? And I thought that the nutrition piece of it was going to be huge. I actually, uh, my dad's an organic farmer in Hawaii, like whole food health and nutrition has been a big part of my personal journey. And so I found a company um, that was really in it with me. So this company called Standard Process, they're a whole food supplement company, um, really involved in chiropractic and acupuncture. And they, I presented them with this and I said, hey, what do you guys think? Like, is there a way to like figure this out? And they're like, well, we have 20 of the top doctors, nutritionists, food scientists, you know, on our staff and this innovation center around nutrition, like come in the lab with us. And so they'd never done this with an athlete before, but they were intrigued. And so I actually went and did a year's long worth of, you know, a hundred plus blood tests, VO2 max tests, all this fitness testing all around my physiology. And they created ultimately a custom food solution as a, a bar form essentially called the 
Colin bar that was all whole food ingredients. It was no, you know, chemical derivatives or anything. It was, you know, coconut oil, you know, seeds, nuts, you know, all these different pieces of ma- macronutrients as well as micronutrient blends that I needed, but custom tailored to my physiology. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I, I mean, that was the bulk of what I ate. I ate 7,000 calories per day. I was burning 10,000. So even at 7,000, I was losing about a pound of day a weight of weight almost um, to my body. So that's why I needed to get bigger. But these column bars just burned super efficiently in my body. Like it was just the perfect blend of everything. So eating the same thing every single day for 54 days may have gotten a little bit boring, but my body was just, it was actually pretty dialed in. Wow. Now, when they did this and they, they made these custom bars for you, did they know how many, I mean, how did you know how many calories you're going to be burning while you're pulling this 300-pound sled? Was it dependent upon the conditions, like if the, the snow was more packed or yep. icy? It'd yeah, be more difficult if it was soft, right? A hundred percent. So, I mean, we had to use our best guess, honestly. We Oof. had to just say, let's use our best guess. I guys had a bunch of smart people smarter than me were yeah. in this room, all these doctors, these PhDs around this, and we had to make some assumptions. And ultimately, they were like, okay, you're going to burn 10,000 calories. Let's get you 10,000 calories in these bars. And we started running the weight on the sled, and we're like, that'll be a 500-pound sled. Like, Ugh. we can't carry that. So, it's this equation of like, can you make the sled light enough to pull? If we can get the nutrition right, how efficiently does that burn in your body? How much can your stomach absorb? So you're hungry the whole time? More or less, yeah. Fuck. Yeah. I was I was ready for a big fucking meal. <laughs> I got done, Jesus that's for sure. Christ. What's the first thing you ate? Uh, this... Uh, the first thing I ate when I got back uh, was a big burger, but th- you might call me lame for saying this, but I'm just going to say it because it's the truth. What I craved was salad, man. What I craved was just f- something because f- I'd Vitamins, eaten this. Yeah. You know what I mean? I've been yeah. eating like this freeze-dried food, this like mm. chunk of bar, which got right. me through, but it was like something green and alive. And so I yeah. had like this big salad with like avocado and salad. You know, I had a big burger too. But then, of course, I eat. My stomach is shrunk, right? I ate this big meal. And I'm like, oh, my stomach kind of hurts. But emotionally, I was like, I'm back in the real world, baby. So it was like, it was, <laughs> I ate everything I could get my hands. I went to a buffet. It just was like, my stomach was hurting, but I was like, I'm not going to stop. And I just started eating like whatever, croissants and bread, <laughs> like, wow. just all the things. So, uh, yeah, I would imagine your body would like, you were probably craving all that life, like right? live things, green, leafy exactly. vegetables and and it, fruit. it's weird to say, I mean, like I'm from Portland, Oregon, you know, it's a pretty green part of the world up there in the Pacific Northwest. And so not even just the, the food component, but and our, there's nothing alive out there. There's no animals right. you know, on the coast there are, but like in the interior, I didn't see any animals. I didn't see a bird. I didn't see, you know, nothing. Right. And so not only have, I think as humans, we're kind of wired to see things living. I mean, yeah. you know, even here in LA, a bit of a concrete jungle, but like you see trees on the street, you see the Swirls. ocean, yeah, whatever. Yeah. And so to not see anything alive for 54 days, it was like, wow, I want to like smell trees, fresh air right. of the trees. I want to eat a salad. I don't know. Like that's where like my mind got to is kind of coming back to reality in that way. Man. So when they're constructing these bars for you, and this is all based on your body and like what burns well with you. How do they like in, in terms of like how many cat? What's the best food in terms of weight versus calories? And yeah. is there some foods that are heavier but don't have as many calories? Yeah. So I think I'm gonna get the numbers pretty close to right here. But I think per hour. 
fat, of course, of the macronutrients, we got protein, fat, and carbs, right? Right. Um, fat is the most calorie dense of them all. Um, and you have to make sure these things don't freeze solid, right? So that was one of the, ch- like, it was minus 25 in my sled every single day. So it had to actually be edible while frozen, essentially, because it would be too hard to rewarm them, because this was a food I was oh. eating outside of my sled. So it so actually- it's frozen too? Frozen too, but actually where we where the workaround happened, where they kind of, their mastermind was, they were like, you actually need this macronutrient blend to be about 40 or 45% fats, because I needed high fat food you know um to stay alive out there and so they basically pumped it full of coconut oil which ultimately you know does you know if you see coconut oil on the shelf it's not a liquid it's actually a solid but it doesn't freeze like rock solid so having that much coconut oil in it allowed it to we actually had to get it shipped down frozen because if it didn't freeze it got it actually kind of got like flat and so they put it in these freeze dried packs shipped it down to chile had to do this whole customs thing to import it It was like a whole like crazy logistical mess uh but got that done and it actually held up so that it was enough fat in there that I could actually bite off chunks of this rather than, you know, there's plenty of stories of guys in these cold places breaking teeth on cliff bars and, oh. and you know, things like that. So, uh, the column bars were, were, were at good, good while frozen. <laughs> breaking teeth I should have brought you one, man. Yeah, I should have brought you one to try one. So it's mostly like a lot of fats and seeds and nuts. Seeds and, and nuts. And then the other thing is that they, like I said, their they're bread and butter at this company, Standard Process, is they're a, you know, a supplement company. So, but it's all whole food derivatives. So mm-hmm. organic farm, basically uh, vitamins. And so they actually intermix like probiotics and magnesium and like beet extract and all these sort of plant derivatives as well to give me the phytonutrients I need. That's not giving me the calories, but that's right. giving me the, and I stayed healthy the whole time. I mean, I got super worn down. I got super skinny you know all that kind of stuff but i actually stayed you know i never got sick you know yeah, i stayed was, healthy that was my other question like what was the plan if you did get sick it was just to wait it out in the tent wait it out in the tent um you know there there's there You're is not the, in contact with anything though right so i had I, I had a couple of things one is i had my gps um which i was paying a satellite every 10 what minutes what i mean is uh life forms oh like no, no no bugs flu, no 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 yeah so that you know. yeah yeah sorry um yeah so that part of it there's nothing out there. So right. basically, if you get a bacteria, you've brought it out there. Right. So the actual idea was more or less to get out there healthy rather right. than you can stay pretty healthy in terms of bacteria and stuff. Of course, oh. you can get pretty worn down and sick and the cold or flu-like right. symptoms any or any of that. you have is something you had when you landed. Exactly. Because there's, I mean, there's nothing out there. And are you, were you concerned about that? Because like, I would imagine like the anticipation leading up to it is a little stressful and sometimes your immune system can get run down. Oh, 100%. You know, of course, it, uh, it's fun to recount the, the epic parts of these journeys or my other, you know, world records, climbing Everest or this summit day or this push or whatever. But anything that's this long duration, this was 54 days. The world record I did in 2006 was 139 days. Like, the boring answer is like, how did you do it? It's like, well, like, I washed my hands really good when I went to the airport and I didn't eat this, like, <laughs> food off the street. And, I, you know, right. staying healthy, yeah. you can't get that right you know, it doesn't matter, you know. Yeah, man, if, imagine you're on the flight headed out there and some dude next to you sneezing. Yeah, oh, like, yeah. motherfucker. There was a couple of times uh, when I raced triathlon many years ago, I think I raced in something like 25 countries all over the world, different places, and there are three or four times that I can remember, like, I remember one time I flew to the Philippines, this place called Subic Bay, gearing up for this big race, and sure enough, the night before the race, just like, 
diarrhea like crazy puking my brains out so i i jump into i jump into the swim swim in the ocean you know it's a mile swim i'm feeling like shit but i'm like oh, i'm gonna try i flew all the way to the philippines like i gotta do this race you know sure enough on the bike i get on my bike and my bike the bike course went right next to my hotel and i just had no power and i was like yep i'm turning off and the filipino guy's like no no you're going the wrong way of the course and i was like nope i'm going to my hotel room to shit some more basically <laughs> so yeah one one bad burrito one bad this can ruin you know any athletic yeah. performance i mean if you have so, diarrhea while you're pulling a 375 pound sled in antarctica <laughs> oh my god that's not a pretty moment that is not a pretty but plus with the one pair of underwear that gets even oh. more <laughs> so it's yeah get staying healthy was was super key to all of this but you know all things considered i mean my body of course got banged up some but like i came out you know relatively healthy and i think the food and nutrition was a key part of that oh it has to be but it sounds like you really did it wisely like you i mean that's so cool that you had that company behind you that Organize the, the preparation, food and nutrition. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Good lord, man. <laughs> now, were you trying to put fat on before you left, as well as muscle? Yeah. So with Mike, you know, the goal was to put, you know, I put about ten to fifteen pounds of muscle on, and then another five pounds of fat on top of that. Just knowing Only five. that five, that I, I mean, total was twenty pounds total. But right. you know, between fat and uh, the last the last few weeks, I was, you know, basically I lifted. I, you know, I gotten strong and all this. Didn't want to wear myself out too much. You know stressing my muscles because i was about to go undergo this and it, it was where i was just putting calories in so i'd you know eat dinner and then jenna my wife would be like what are you gonna head out and i'd be, like, I'd be sitting there just eating like a pint of you know coconut bliss ice cream whatever mm-hmm. it was you know putting calories in to just to put some fat on there because that right. just burned off me immediately i mean it was gone so yeah was, so you must have been shredded by the time it was over <laughs> yeah i uh i was pretty that there's actually i don't know if you'll pull it up but there's a photo on my instagram that's got shows a little bit of the before and the after body shot but i uh uh, yeah, I was I was very lean, um, but it was honestly it was also scary. Like in the end, I think I held up pretty well. But you're out there by yourself; you've got no context. And so I started looking down at my legs halfway through this journey. Uh, yeah, there I am. So before and after, um, not that much of a difference. Uh, yeah, it's a little the lights I mean, not great. You I, definitely look a lot <laughs> more lean. A yeah, more. I wouldn't even say a lot more lean. Yeah, so it's about twenty pounds different. But my mind's played tricks on me more than anything. I look down at my waist. About about halfway through and I was like holy shit like I'm I'm falling apart here and I actually started getting in my own head about am I losing too much weight am I not Ooh. but when I when I actually weighed myself afterwards like 20 pounds like we thought it could have been as much as 40 pounds so mm. you know only losing 20 pounds all things considered like yeah like you said I don't look that other than that really cool beard that I grew um <laughs> so you were ready to get gaunt yeah, I mean, we we had planned for that. We had planned for that. And like I said, I started out. I started out about one sixty five. I put myself up to one eighty five to leave, and I finished at one sixty five. So I actually finished way more near my sort of natural, fairly lean weight for my height. Um, so a perfect plan. I, there's there's plenty of things went wrong, but <laughs> that it part seems of it, like yeah, you yeah. kind of planned out for things going yeah. wrong. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm probably like this. This was a in one in one way is a solo effort. I mean, I was out there by myself walking across this, but this was a massive team effort from these guys getting behind me, all these doctors, you know, all the different people I have supporting me, my, you know, my wife and then what she does with all the media and our nonprofit and it's a many things. A lot of pieces go into making this thing happen. So it was a team <sighs> effort for sure, big time. That is so amazing. Now, at the end, you get there, you're done, but there's no one there. So what do you do? You make a phone call? <laughs> yeah. Yo, I'm done. Come get me. <laughs> do they know where you are? Because they're tracking you, right? Yeah. So 
what was kind of crazy was that crazy last push, right? It's this 32-hour, you know, oh. nonstop push uh, till the end. And so what happened is it's Christmas Day when I start this push. And so my whole family, uh, I'm actually, I have five older sisters, big family. You know, I'm the, I'm the baby of the bunch. And they're all together in Hood River, Oregon at my sister's house. And they're thinking, cool, Colin's like getting close to the end of his project. We'll track him. And every day they track me on my GPS. It pinged the satellites every 10 minutes. So people, all my Instagram followers, anyone could actually follow the progress in real time. Time. And they were used to seeing me stop at about 12, 12 hours into the day. So 12 hours into the day happens and they're like, okay, maybe he's going another hour, 13 hours, 14 hours, 15 hours. They're like, what's going on? 16 hours. My whole family's not normally together, but they're all together because it's Christmas day. Finally, 18 hours into this push, I finally stop and put up a waypoint because what happened was I ran out of water. Even though I said, I'm not stopping. I was like, I only had three liters of water after 18 hours. I need more water. So I at least have to put my tent up to boil water inside. So what I do, it's now midnight. I start at 6 a.m. It's now midnight. I've been going 18 hours. And midnight in Antarctica is uh, what the time zone I was staying on was 7 p.m. on the West Coast. So it's Christmas dinner. I finally call in. It's my mom, my sister, my wife. Like everyone's on the phone. They're like, oh my God, you did 47 miles today. That's your best by like 15 miles. Incredible. And I was like, no, 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 I'm not stopping. I'm actually just boiling water for an hour to continue back out for another like 14 hours to finish this thing. They're like, what? The weather must be really good. Wow, you're feeling so good. And I was like, I was like, actually, it's uh, the worst weather of the entire trip because this <laughs> massive ground blizzard blew. Like, like hour sixteen of this push, it was nice. Just this ground blizzard, which is it's not actually snowing, but it feels like it's snowing because it's so windy that the snow is blowing around everywhere. But I was locked in such a deep flow state in my mind that even setting my tent up in this crazy storm, even getting inside, eighteen hour push, I was just like. Nope, I've got this. And it felt like for me, when I reflect on that moment, um, Jenna even says this, you know, she talked to me every night and there's clips of me crying. There's clips of me having doubts. You know, there was ups and downs to this whole thing, but she was like, you sounded the most lucid I've ever heard you. And she's watched me high perform and other things. She was like, you were locked in. And so instead of her going like, maybe you should sleep and like get some rest, she was like, I trust you. Like, I believe you. Like, go for it. She could just hear it in my voice. Um, And and it was a crazy thing. And for me, you know, I'm 33 years old now and it really felt like a culmination of my entire life in a lot of ways. Like from the swim practices as a little kid to, you know, I got burning this crazy fire that I overcame. We can talk about that if you want. I, I you know, raced triathlon professionally. All of these moments of life, the meditation practice, the the family, the support, like, it's like all of these things were stacking on each other to kind of lead to this final culminating moment. And I had to pull on lessons from each phase of my life to be that locked in. But I found myself just, you know, kind of in that moment, in that flow state, um, being able to get up out of that hour 18 and say to them, actually, I'm going back out in this crazy ground blizzard. I got another 14 hours to go to finish this thing. And so that was, you know, 32 hours and 77 miles later, the, the final push uh, to the end. Now, what did you wear in terms of like a base layer? And was there a concern about you sweating while you're pulling all that weight, especially initially when it was 375 pounds? Yeah. So, you know, one of the, the famous lines that, you know, people who have been in the polar environments will say is, if you sweat, you die. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's maybe a little bit of hyperbole, but it's not far from the truth, which is you start sweating and you stop for even 30 seconds, your clothes are literally freezing to your body. And right. so it was this crazy kind of kind of balance of being able to pull the sled, get your heart rate elevated enough to keep your body warm, but not too warm that you were sweating. And so any second I would start sweating, I, I would strip layers off. So there was times, especially when there was no wind, it'd still be ambient temperature, minus 20, minus 25, but I would just have like a thin Gore-Tex jacket on and one base layer. That's it. I mean- Were you wearing Merino? 
Um, I merino actually itches my skin, although it's really good. But for <gasps> me, I'm a little bit allergic to it. Um, so I wear like synthetic fabric. Um, Do but, they have a synthetic that completely mimics merino in terms of the way it, when it's moist, you still stay warm? Yeah. So mer- merino, like, honestly, merino is amazing fabric for that reason. Um, unfortunately for me, like I said, it just irritates it my skin. It is so funny that you could suffer through all that, <laughs> but you can't have itchy like little, clothes little, on. Little, little merino wool is gonna make me feel that. Uh, no, but uh, so I use a synthetic. But it's what crazy. company are you using? Like what? What? what um, I was using Mountain Hardware base layers, um, and then actually my outer layers was this Norwegian company called Bergens of Norway. They don't sponsor me, but they actually, believe it or not, the Norwegians know a thing or two about being in the polar environment. And so they've, they've designed a really good jacket and pant that's actually really breathable and really good. And then I su- sewed a fur ruff uh, onto the edge, so a, a, a wolf a wolf uh, uh, fur ruff on the outer side of the wolf? hood. I think it's wolf, yeah. Wolf oh. fur. Wolfer. I thought you were saying wool, wolf. and then I was like, it sounds like wolf. You know more about this than me. I, I'm not the, I hope I don't annoy your audience. I'm not, I'm not a big hunter myself. I've never never done that, a lot of that, but uh, yeah, that's a wolfer. Well, they, they know how to survive in the cold. Yeah, exactly. So, now, the base layer is a synthetic, what what is the material that it's made out of? The base layer is, yeah, it's a, th- it's a synthetic, um, like a poly, polypropylene, uh, something like that. And so, like it, when it sweats, it dries quickly, is yeah. that the idea? Yeah, so it sweats, it dries quickly, but the idea was just to not get it wet so basically mm-hmm. strip down as much as possible um but like literally i'd go from that and then of course i needed to eat and drink every whatever 30 minutes or whatever actually more like every hour or so i'd stop so i'd stop in the front of my sled i had a huge puffy down jacket like a massive like michelin man huge buffy down jacket so even if you're stopping for a minute to drink water before even trying to do that boom put the big jacket on because mm. that's how cold or how cold you can get immediately from stopping i mean it's just so much colder than when pulling the sled your heart rate stays up and keeps you pretty warm i would imagine like your your hands and your feet too that would be a real issue right the small digits yeah i mean you know frostbite's real for sure um hands outside of the gloves that's why some of the stuff i was doing in the training of get my hands with the dexterity you know you have to tie all these knots with big gloves mittens on you can't take your gloves off for any sizable period of time uh if you look back on a lot of my photos i've actually got tape on my face over across my nose and yeah, my cheeks I saw that. um and that's because i started getting tiny little bits of frostbite uh on oh. the bottoms of my nose and on on my cheeks because i'd wear a full face mask buff everything but even you know tiny little you know one you know needle prick of wind on your face throughout the day and that cold is going to turn into a cold injury and so i started getting a few cold injuries on my face nothing you know too bad you're looking do you up. grease your face up or anything like mostly the the tape um and then so i had a little bit of like vaseline or like chapstick type of stuff on some of the bad areas the one thing actually that i did that uh i'd never done before would actually worked well was a tip that i got which was my fingers started cracking really really bad from the cold and so they were like really painful and i actually was pouring putting super glue into all of those basically little micro cuts on my fingers which when someone told me that as a trick i was like really but turns out it's actually a really good trick so it's kind of super gluing these cuts on my fingers back together um and that actually worked reasonably well all things considered i mean i was (laughs) all things considered (laughs) is the operative word but it, it worked yeah Wow. So you're wearing the what about your eyes? So I'm wearing I'm wearing uh goggles um but you know funny enough you know 
I had a couple of you know fancier, nicer ski goggles with me. Um, but uh, yeah, there's the tape on my face right there. Um, but uh, but yeah, like that's actually just like the normal K tape tape, like a physio tape that you'd mm-hmm. see like athletes wearing. And I just had it in my repair kit. It wasn't meant for this purpose, but I was like, what do I have that I could put on my face to block it a little bit better? <laughs> um, but I had those goggles on some of the time. But actually, the goggle that I wore the most was one that you might use for motocross um, because it has like a plastic face mask over the front of it because mm. um, the wind when it was blowing it would just kind of blow around so sometimes I had this flea stripped over my face but it blow too much um, and so I had this more plastic face mask yeah so that wow. that's the that's one you can see look how frozen Jesus it frozen Christ. it is on the inside that is so crazy <laughs> oh my god man there and then like this neoprene mask underneath so I had like double face mask double tape like anything to just you know keep me keep me warm i would uh, never have suspected that it was so high above sea level there yeah yeah so you've got whatever it is nine thousand three hundred feet at the south pole so it's basically just like elevated ground but it seems flat right but yeah i started at sea level so right. you got, i'm not only at, oh like God. i'm actually going uphill all the way to the south uh, pole so for the first 40 some days i pulled that sled uphill uh, uh <laughs> completely dude, so it was freaking uh, me out <laughs> the whole was, thing freaks me out yeah. Like, like when you were freaking out an hour in and you hadn't even actually hit <laughs> land yet. Yeah. What a, what thoughts were going through your head? Like, were you thinking, man, I need to get someone to fucking rescue me? I mean, it definitely, you know, that what those moments of doubt, oh, this is on Everest. This, oh, this, this is a different one. We'll get to this. We'll get to this. Yeah. Um, the, uh, you know, what was going through my head was, was these moments of doubt for sure. Um, but one of the things for me, you know, to be honest with these projects that I've created, I love, I love pushing my own limits. I love, I love finding the edges of my own potential, all that kind of stuff. But I also now really enjoy building these projects that I can share with other people. I do this, I do this nonprofit work where there's you know, 30,000 school kids tuning into this project and using this as curriculum in their classrooms to learn about climate change, to learn about weather, atmospheric pressure. That's a really cool project like that. And then just sharing it with the world at large. People going like, this is impossible. I mean, how many guys do you know that's like, one day I'm going to do this cool thing, but they like never do it, right? right? And so actually going after that and sharing it away, it's like, you might not want to walk across Antarctica but like you probably have some hope or some dream or some goal that you want to accomplish in your life like fucking go and do it like get yeah. after it and so for me doing this it's funny I've, I've started to think of myself less as an athlete and actually more of as an artist and my canvas really is just endurance sports but creating these art projects in the world that I can create and share with people through storytelling to hopefully inspire them to do that so what was I thinking in that first hour was you know I don't <laughs> I don't want my art project <laughs> to blow up right in my face but more so there was this was bigger than myself and that's really what kept me going forward it's like i can't let these kids in these public school classrooms think that i quit after the first hour like these other people that are they're driving inspiration from this hopefully like i want to do this for this larger purpose and honestly that's what that's what really kept me going forward through the really hard times was that 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 connection to a larger purpose of what i want to put out in the world and that ripple effect of positivity that's awesome and then of course you have a giant team that prepared and helped yeah. you and you oh. don't want to let them down as oh, well. Oh yeah, you know, it's 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 a lot lot goes into <laughs> it. So get get into that get into that starting line and having that doubt. But I think I mean on one level it's also it's a human element. It's it's it'd be easy for me to come in here and tell this story like, you know what, Joe, like I'm the biggest badass in the world. No one's walked across Antarctica and like I did it, even though these people died trying, whatever. Like those are the facts of the situation. But like the truth is, man, like 
I'm human. Like I have the wave of human emotions. I've figured out how to tap into my mind in a way to do these things, but like I still experience fear. I still experience doubt. I still experience the ups and downs, but I have a way of actually being able to repurpose or refocus that energy into positive forward momentum. I think that's what the difference is. But I believe all of us, all of us humans have the capacity to do this. Like you're looking at me, I'm like a pretty like regular, like size, regular looking guy. Um, But I think, you know, the muscle between my ears is what separates the difference and it allows me to do this more than anything you don't seem to have the darkness that i usually see in people that do things like this do you know what i'm saying yeah. like there's i've yeah. met a bunch of people that have done some fucked up things yeah. and they all have some weird darkness yeah you know i hear what you're saying i think for me there's a lot of this strength comes from a dark moment in my life um you know, right after college, uh, I was traveling around the world. I, you know, I had no money as a kid growing up, you know, you know work, working class background, painted houses every summer, but always dreamed of traveling the world. So I was like, one day I'm going to travel the world. So I finished college, buddies of mine are getting like real jobs and whatever, Wall Street and things like that. And I was like, you know what? I saved up $10,000 over the past six years. I'm going to take a surfboard and a backpack and like go see the world with my life savings. And so, you know, I went and do that. I'm 21 years old, you know, I go to Fiji. I surf through Australia, hitchhike through New Zealand. I end up in Thailand. And um, you ever been to Thailand? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, and you, so you're familiar with how much fire and fire dancing and various crazy debaucherous things that happen over there. So I'm on a beach in rural Thailand and I decide to jump this flaming jump rope. Um, and unfortunately it goes terribly wrong for me. The rope wraps around my legs and ignites my entire body on, body on fire to my neck. Um, and, you know, in an instant, my life changed. You know, fortunately for me, the water's edge, the ocean was 10 steps away. So kind of instinct takes over and I dive into the ocean, which extends the flames, my body's on fire to my neck, but not before about 25% of my body is severely, severely burned. So my clothes were on fire, um, but mostly what got severely burned was my legs and feet. And so I'm in a place, I'm on a beach, there's there's no hospital on this, I'm on an island, there's no hospital. Instead of an ambulance ride, I'm on the back of a moped, driving down a dirt path, you know, I'm, I'm in a, a one-room sh- nursing station, literally like the size of the room we're sitting in, they're like, this is our sort of hospital, it's like one bed, and I'm just completely devastated. Devastated. And so they, they put me under eight surgeries over the next week in the middle of nowhere, rural Thailand. They, eight surgeries in a tiny little shack? Yeah. And the, basically, there's a cat running around my bed every time I come out of their, you know, quote unquote, ICU. There's a cat running around my bed and across my chest. And the doctors are literally saying to me, you know, in the, in the broken, you know, English, they're saying, hey, you'll probably never walk again normally. Like, you're, oh. you're probably never going to walk again normally. Um, yeah, there, there's a photo of that. I think if you click over on, on that to the second one, it actually shows... Um, you know, there, there's what the legs Whoa. look like. Um, so, you know, I was, and that's that, that photo there with those legs, that's actually eight weeks after I was burned. So that, believe it or not, that's like it's starting to look a little bit better. Um, all things considered there. So as you can probably imagine, I mean, just the darkest time in my life, I've been, you know, an athlete, you know, I swam through college, I, you know, I thought of myself as a physically active person. And here I am like doctor saying, Hey, you know, 22 year old kid, like you'll never walk again normally. Um, and to me, they're the hero in this story, which is maybe why you don't see the darkness in my eyes and it's more the light. But, you know, my mother is really the the heroine of this tale, which is she she arrived to my bedside around day five, you know, flies all the way over to Thailand, finds me. Um, are you are you a parent? I don't know. Do you have kids? Yeah. yeah. I don't have kids yet, but I can only imagine as a parent what it's like to oh. walk into a you know hospital room and see your kid halfway around the world in this state, nothing you can do. And she admits now that she was crying in the hallways, you know, pleading with the doctors for good news. Like, he's going to be all right, right? He's going to walk. She's crying. 
every time she walked into my hospital room, she walked in with a smile on her face. And there's this air of positivity of being like, okay, Colin, like this is bad. Like, what do you want to do when you get out of here? Like, let's set a goal. Like, let's get out of here and do something positive. And I'm like, mom, you, are you crazy? Like the doctors say, I'm never going to walk again normally. Like my life as I know it is over, you know, just in this really dark place in my mind. But she just kept at me day after day with this positivity, this, that. And I finally was like, closed my eyes. And I just pictured like, what, what am I going to be? And I closed my eyes and I had this visualization of myself crossing a triathlon finish line, which is not something I'd ever done before. Like I'd swam in college, but I'd never biked or run competitively, nothing. But I was like, you know what? The able-bodied me sometime in the future is going to be not only walking again, but doing a triathlon race. And so I said it to her, I said, my goal is to race a triathlon one day. And instead of her looking at me going like, well, I said set a goal, but maybe something more realistic that doesn't require you to be running. Um, she was like, great let's learn about it. Pulls out her computer and just literally starts reading me like triathlon races are this, they're this far, they're this distances. Like I didn't know, I knew nothing about the sport other than just like popped into my mind as something I thought I maybe wanted to do. Um, and so that's what I focus on. I literally have this photo of me with the Thai doctor. I'm, you know, my legs are bandaged to my waist and the Thai doctor is like looking at me like crazy, but I'm lifting these like 10 pound barbells in my hand going, I'm training for a triathlon now. The guy's like, you're in Thailand in a hospital and I'm telling you, you're never going to walk again normally. Um, and so, you know, flash forward, you know, two or three months, I finally get released from this Thai hospital. For, you were there for three months. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. And when I got released, I still hadn't walked. You know, I'm in, I'm in a wheelchair. Um, I got carried on and off the flight back to Portland, Oregon, land back home and, uh, you know, still, still bandaged up. And my mom, you know, says to me, I wake up the first morning back in my parents' house, my mother's kitchen, the house I grew up in. And she looks at me and she goes, all right, Colin, now I know you've got this big triathlon goal, but today your goal is to take your very first step. And so she actually grabs a chair from our kitchen table and places it one step in front of my wheelchair. And she says, today you need to somehow figure out how to get out of that wheelchair, take one step and step into the chair in front of you. And I'm looking at it like, I don't know if this is possible, but three hours later, four hours later, I'm still staring at this chair and I finally work up the courage and strength to get out of this wheelchair, take the one step and get into that chair in front of me. And is the problem that because of the burnt skin, it's not flexible? You can't yeah. move it and bend it? No, it's a good question. So basically what happened with the burn is it burned me so deep that two things happened. One is there was ligament damage. So ligament damage to my ankles and knee joints. And then the way that this, the, he, the scarring in the skin is healing essentially over these mobile joints, they don't think I'm going to regain full flexibility um, at full range of motion essentially in my leg. So they're not saying you'll never walk as in you won't be able to stand up at all although that was like extremely painful but they just didn't think you know be a magazine walking around without being able to bend your knees or your ankles with like mm. full mobility so it just was like you're not going to be able to have that back basically so sure enough i take that first step get in that chair the next day my mom doesn't take it easy on me she just moved the chair five steps away the next day 10 steps away you know every day a few more steps um and not to go on and on but basically 18 months after you know getting released from that hospital i find myself in chicago i finally you know took a job in finance just trying to get out of my parents basement like get on with my life I'm 23 years old like yeah I gotta get like a real job get out of my parents basement you know move to Chicago take a job in finance and uh, um, try to get my, my shit together basically and I, I honored that goal I said you know what I'm gonna sign up for the Chicago triathlon I live here now join a local gym knew nothing about the sport still I'm like asking random guys at the gym like anybody here race a triathlon like I'm in a spin class <laughs> like how do you like like how do you like take your shoes off and like right. run afterwards how do you yeah. you know like how like, how does it even work? Like, ask these questions. And sure enough, through that process, I, like, trained at this gym, signed up for the Chicago Triathlon, ended up racing the race, crossed the finish line. And to my complete and other surprise, 
I didn't just finish the race, but I actually won the entire Chicago triathlon beating 4,000 other people coming first place. What? <laughs> so, <Your> first triathlon? <laughs> first triathlon you won? ever. Wow. Uh, and and how, what kind of training did you do to prepare yourself for that? I mean, like I said, I, I, you know, I had been a collegiate swimmer, so I was a division right. one swimmer, um, swam at Yale University. Uh, but then, you know, the biking and running was completely new to me. Um, did you have anybody show you how to do it or did you just start running and biking? Yeah. I literally walked into this spin class, like a spin, not like a, like so a, you didn't actually ride a bike. You well, I, I, so I went to the spin class and like start like met a guy and he was like, Oh, I've done one triathlon before. And he was like, I can, so he took me out on a couple like rides with his buddies. I had this like steel frame bike. I didn't know all these like carbon wheels and arrow helmet, you know, all these right. like fancy like triathlon type of things. Like didn't know much about it. And literally for a summer, just kind of like asked people some questions, this. And what's funny about triathlon, I don't know how familiar you are with this sport, but um, in, the, in a race like the Chicago triathlon, there's, you know, four, more than 4,000 participants. And so unlike a marathon where everyone just starts at the same time, you actually have to start in waves, like 100 people every five minutes. And I was the 39th wave of 53. And so I dive into Lake Michigan and there's people that already started like two hours before me and there's people starting two hours after me. And so when I finished the race, you know, I swim, I bike, I run, it was Olympic distance triathlon. So it was a mile swim, 25 miles bike, 6.2 mile run. I crossed the finish line. I don't still know I won the race because like people started before me, people started after me and they take the cumulative time at the end. And so I like my grandma's there cause she lives in Chicago, like gives me a big hug. Like, I'm so proud of you. You weren't able to walk again. And here you are finishing a triathlon. Let's go get lunch. And so I, you know, grab my wetsuit and my bike, my grandma and I sit down to have lunch. And as we're walking back to the car, she's like, do you want to see like what place you came in your age group? And I was like, sure. Like, that would be cool. Like, let's go see how I did. And we wander over to like the scorers table and the guy's like, I'm like, oh, you know, I'm trying to figure out a place. What's your name? I was like, oh, I'm Colin O'Brady. They're like, we've been calling your name over the loudspeaker for the last 20 minutes. I'm like, oh, why? Did I like do something wrong? And they're like, you won. Like, like my age group? And they're like, no, you won. Like the whole race. <laughs> it was just this surreal, surreal moment uh, in my life. I mean, it was, it was wild, but it... um you know, for me, you know, in that moment, what I thought back on was like, it was cool to pat myself on the back, like, holy shit, like I just did this crazy thing. But it was more so going back to your initial question about the darkness versus the light, at least in my journey, was I was like, wow, like this was a sliding doors moment. Like what had happened had my mom not, you know, come in with this air of positivity and forced me to set this tangible goal. Like I'm certain my life would be nowhere where it was today. But then it's not, I wasn't like, oh, wow, I'm some superhuman freak that can do these things. I was like, wow, humans, all of us, we all have these reservoirs of untapped potential inside of us and can achieve extraordinary things when we set our minds to it. And so what it did for me, is just sparked this curiosity, like, well, what else can I do if I set my mind to it? So sure enough, it was a Sunday when I raced a Chicago triathlon, coincidentally um, met who became a huge mentor and influence in my life that afternoon, um, a guy named Brian Gelber, who ended up being my first sponsor. And he said to me, you won the Chicago triathlon today. Do you think you should maybe do something about that? And I was like, yeah, but I've got a job and I don't have any money. Like I would need a sponsor. He's like, he's like, I'll be your first sponsor if it's something you want to take seriously. And so literally that was on a Sunday, Monday morning, I walk in and quit my job. <laughs> immediately oh my god <laughs> and two weeks later i'm living in australia training triathlon full-time and ended up racing triathlon professionally for the u.s national team you know all over the world for the next six years so wow. <laughs> it was crazy a story. crazy moment and um, what what happened ultimately with the injuries that you sustained from the fire you know all things considered that was so that was january 14th 2008 so it's uh, just over 11 years ago now um and i uh you know i 
ultimately have been pretty all right. I mean, I've got some scars, but it's pretty faint. Um, was able to gain back most of the full flexibility in my legs. If you look at my left foot, it's where the worst, worst burns of it, where the rope really just like sat on my foot for a long time, must have. Um, that's still pretty thick with scar tissue. Um, you know, when I'm in the mountains, when I'm in places, you know, like climbing Mount Everest, like I did, like pulling across Antarctica, all the things, I have to be really aware because my skin regulates heat, not in the best way, heat and cold. It's still just like, you know, not like normal skin. Because of the scar tissue? The scar tissue just is it's just carries the heat a little bit different for some reason i guess i don't know exactly it's why not, not as porous because yeah, it's, it's not as porous covered over exactly and the um actually in the early days for the first five years i don't get this so often anymore but in the first literally five years of this if i bumped my legs into like a table or someone just you know bumped a chair into me you know nothing like lightly i would usually get a little cut there so it was just super fragile it was mm. almost like you know glass skin kind of um with, with not the same sort of flexibility that you normally have but you know 10 11 years on now I would say it's pretty much 100%. I mean, the things I've done with my legs and body in the last 10 years, I think, prove at least that, that my body's doing all right. So I feel extremely, extremely fortunate to have recovered as, as well as I did. And, you know, more than anything, I, I attest that to, of course, the, the physical uh, ability for my body to recover in the way it did. But I think that, at least for me, started with the mind, started with that positivity of my mother and, and the duration of the many different things I've done done since then. And you said you sustained ligament damage to your joints and your knees? Yeah, yeah, so there was basically um, again. I'm I'm not a my my anatomy. I have other skills, but my full anatomy is not a. <laughs> I'm not a doctor. Let's put it that way. Um, but yeah, basically the ligaments, particularly on the backs of my knees. So I don't know exactly what that ligament is that goes through um, through there, but um, that was really jammed up with with the scar tissue. So I wasn't able for a long time to fully bend my knees uh, and, and flex them in the full way. And the same thing uh, in the ankles, whatever that ligament is that goes sort of basically turn not not your Achilles, but the other side of, mm -hmm. of your foot. But basically, that part was just so much scar tissue had formed where the skin was healing around that. And from the damage to the ligaments, it wasn't sort of being able to fluidly flex uh, in the way that you normally would see a foot. So a full, imagine point, imagine not being able to point your foot, basically, if you're, you know, putting your leg forward out, you know, back like, yeah, kind of like that. So, yeah, for a long time. And it was kind of, so I was kind of like dragging my feet around in that first year. Um, wow. And uh, so did you have to just push through the scar tissue and break it up? Like, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of, a lot of obviously PT. Um, uh, a lot of uh, massage. massage. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. It's funny. I haven't thought of the story in a long time. Um, uh, I don't know if I've ever told this story actually. But so when I got burned, I've been traveling by myself in Thailand or around the world, but I actually met up. Uh, with my childhood best friend, uh, his name's David Boyer, who actually uh, re uh, married my sister and they have two kids. So my childhood best friend turned into my uh, brother-in-law, which is, which oh, is pretty wow. fun. <laughs> but uh, anyways, um, he had been he had actually been with me when I got burned. So those first five days in the hospital before my mom got there, he was with me um, and was was a saint. You know, we're both these scared little 22-year-old kids and he's like trying to do his best to like look after me and he's freaked out. But when I get back to Portland, his mother, who was kind of a second mother for me growing up, her name's Kate Boyer. Where, um, she obviously was like, wow, this could have been my son just as he said it had been, you know, her son, you know, it kind of felt like protective of me. So she comes over to my house one day and she goes, you know, I've been doing some untraditional healing work. Would you be open to that? And I, at this point was like, I'll take anything. What do you got in mind? And she was like, well, I've, I've been working with this uh, pranic healing shaman. Uh, do you want to want to check that out? And I literally was like, I was like saying yes to everything at this point. Like I'm looking for any way to recover. And I was like, well, what is it? And she was like, well, they don't even touch you. It's just light healing. And so I go to this basement 
uh, in Portland and I meet this this guy and he's sitting there with a bucket of salt in front of him and he starts he doesn't touch me at all he's just like waving his hands in front of like my body and my heart and then he's like looking really intensely at my foot and I sit there for like an hour guy never touches me nothing he's just like looking at me waving his hand in this and and he's like okay I'm done now and I'm like okay, what did you do? And he was, you know, telling, I opened up this chakra, I opened up that, I did this. But what I mostly did was I put this force field of white light around your left foot. And I'm like, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm down with some untraditional stuff, but I was kind of like, uh-huh, cool. Like, mm. thanks, I appreciate it. And he's doing all, and I was like, what's this bucket? And he was like, this is the salt bucket that takes the negative energy away from your foot and your leg and puts the negative energy in there as I'm bringing in this light. And so this is pranic healing. And he's like, so you have this light blue force field over your left foot right now, which was the worst burn part of my body. I, he goes, I would recommend not showering for the next couple of days as you might wash off the force field. So what jails that guy yeah. in now? <laughs> So I tell this story with a total smile, a cheeky smile on my face because that's funny. I haven't thought of the story in a long time. But I will say this. The next day, I walked further than I had the rest of the time. So you want to call that placebo. You want to call it whatever. I, I emotionally wasn't fully bought in on the pranic healing. Although, like I said, I am into very a lot of alternative modalities. God, I wish it was true. Yeah. <laughs> so, I wish it was true. I, I met a lady at the comedy store once told me she does Reiki healing. Yeah. And she like kind of rubbed her hands together and, and waved them in front of me. I'm like, what are you doing? She's like, do you, do you feel that? I'm like, I don't feel shit. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so that that part, I don't I don't know if it worked or, or it didn't work, but the the combination of the amount of people with, you know, in the hospital with the physical therapist, with my mother at home, with Kate Boyer taking me to the pranic healing, a culmination of all of those things somehow yeah. did unlock the, uh, the scar tissue and allow me to make a full recovery. I mean, it was a lot of hard work for, you know, a year plus to get back on my feet, but I got there. Well, I'm sure there's something to be said for believing or at least having positive thoughts about your healing and making sure that you look at it in terms of like this can be done, but yeah. No, I mean, very skeptical. Like, the salt man, like I said, the the salt man. Take it for what it is. Like I said, I'm, I'm telling that story not as a, an advocate for pranic healing necessary, but I will say, agreeing with what you just said, there is something about that. There's something about being wrapped in the positivity that it was with mm. my mother in that moment of just being sure. like, hey, like let's get through this, let's yeah. figure this out together, like let's focus our mind on something. And a lot of you know, even as I go through Antarctica, you know, how did you do that? Like you know, people ask me this question, like, are you a superhuman? And I'm like, yeah, I'm a superhuman, and so are you. Like that's how I feel. Like we all have this capacity in our minds to unlock all sorts of things. I don't care. I mean, if you want to paint pictures, compose music, start a business, you know, sit sit in a, a warehouse and do a podcast, whatever it is you want to do. Yeah. <laughs> You can fucking do amazing things like, and you know, having that belief does, does, you know, add up to that. I mean, that's step one, in my opinion, is visualizing that and believing it. And on the flip side, having a negative self-worth or a negative opinion of what you're about to do or a negative thought about the future can also manifest all sorts of terrible results. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, you gotta think, I mean, placebo effect is a real thing. We know that, right? We know that if you really do believe that you're going to get better because of some sugar pill they give you, yeah. there's a tangible result. 100%. If, if you really believe. Yeah. So if that salt guy, if the thing about all that stupid shit is, if you believe it, it actually has an effect. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of healers out there that at least on paper are totally full of shit. 
But if you believe in these assholes, yeah, that they can, can make a big difference. Yeah, it's very slippery. The yeah. human mind is such a slippery thing. I mean, and I'll, I'll go back to my own experience. And again, uh, I don't know how ephemeral or out there you want to get, but I'm out there in Antarctica, 54 days alone. Like I'm telling you, I'm doing this for this bigger purpose. I feel like I'm tapped into that. And like, legitimately, there were moments, at least for me, whether I'm manifesting that in my mind, whatever you want to call it, that I am actually feeling energetically uplifted by the people pushing me on. Like there were days that were incredibly hard where I would sit there and I'd be like, oh my God, I don't know if I can do this. And I'm like, boom, like I would get over, I would hit with this sort of larger purpose, this larger outcome. And again, like I'm not, I'm not a super religious person. I was actually raised on a hippie commune. Like I come from a pretty untraditional background, but like the energetic field, whatever you want to call that, or if that's just the belief in something, you know, the power of that, like I felt the strength from those moments. There was moments when my body switched from kind of being negative. Oh my God, another hard day out here. Oh my God, it's minus 25 to tapping into those flow states. So again, I don't, I don't have perfect words for that. Um, you know, I'm starting to try to build my vocabulary around that. But that energy, I think it is derives from what you're saying. If you start to believe it, if you can believe like, hey, there's a larger purpose in this or hey, this blue force field's going <laughs> to heal my foot. There is something that if you can originate that positivity in your mind that I think can give us incredible amounts of strength um, and, and then we can tap into something greater. Well, I think there's definitely something to what you were saying about the untapped limits of the human potential and that there's most people barely scratch the surface of that. And if you really firmly get into that zone and believe you can do things that people just they really don't have any idea what they can do if they have to because people are rarely pushed to their actual limits yeah i mean you know it's been said many times before i say it but that that idea that growth happens outside the comfort zone and one of the things that i've personally thought about a lot in this space is you know, I got severely burned in this fire. I didn't, well, I chose to jump the rope. So I was chose to be a knucklehead 22 year old kid on a beach in Thailand. But like, I wasn't like, God, I want to get severely burned today. Like that happened to me. Right. right. Which forced me through this intense, tragic moment. But from that, I was able to learn of this sort of untapped potential inside of me because of the outcome, because of winning this triathlon. Yeah. But what I realized is that it's hard to choose that path often. It's hard to push yourself outside of those boundaries, but things that are, you know, quote unquote forced on you. I mean, let's look at something that half this population essentially does give birth, like childbirth, Mm. natural childbirth, right? It's been happening since the beginning of time. And that's an incredibly intense physical manifestation of the power of the human body. I mean, Mm. I I can't even imagine obviously what that would look like, nor will I ever be able to experience that, but that's incredibly powerful Mm. or times when people, you know, are forced to go through a cancer diagnosis and have to go through radiation and chemo and, you know, facing the mortality and all this sort of stuff. People get through those, but oftentimes these tragedies have to be forced upon us for us to do them. And so my exploration now with my, what I, you know, creative artwork, I call it with these, you know, expeditions, these world record projects that push my body and mind, it's me choosing to step into those moments. It's me choosing to put my body and mind in these intense moments because of a deep curiosity of like, what are the limits of human potential? You know, what, what are my limits? What are our limits collectively? And can my physical expression of this inspire other people to innovate, create, and do amazing things in the world and in other modalities and canvases? Well, that's one of the weird things about people doing extraordinary things like what you did is that you absolutely will give other people fuel to accomplish things in their life. Inspiration is so critical for human beings. I mean, I draw upon it from so many different sources, from David Goggins and a, a bunch of my other friends, yeah. like my friend Cameron Haynes and a lot of other people that are endurance athletes and different people that I've inter- uh, interviewed on this podcast. 
But there's something that happens when you realize that people can do extraordinary things that makes you believe in the potential, not just in that person, but also in yourself. Absolutely. I mean, you know, Gog is a great example of that. I've never yeah. met him, but, you know, I've personally derived inspiration from that guy. I mean, he gets out there, you know, you can't run 100 miles. Like, I'll show you I can run 100 miles, you know, and he's pushing his body to extreme ways. Or, you know, I love what he says about the 40%. You know, I think about it yeah. a little bit different in my mind, but like, what are those limits? I mean, I don't know if it's 40% people or quit 50%. At 40%. People quit, you know, people quit. Yeah. That I can't voice comes up. And, yeah. you know, he's proven it. So as many other people of actually, when you say I can't, Actually, when you don't stop, you get stronger. And for me, in my own story, in my own journey, I think that final day, that final 32-hour push proves it. Three days before that, you know, I'm videotaping all this. I'm trying to capture as much content to be able to share with people of this crazy, weird place that's Antarctica by yourself. And like day 49, day 40, 50, like I'm literally crying into my GoPro being like, I'm running out of food. I'm exhausted. I don't know if I can keep doing this. I'm just like worked, right? But sure enough... I don't say I can't, you know, it's that for, it was at 40%, it was at 50%. That's that moment when I wanted to quit or I should have quit. But then the strongest, most amazing moment of my entire athletic career that spans decades happens three days later because I kept pushing. It's not like I rested for three days and pulled that off. Like mm. I never took a rest day in 54 days. I pulled my sled 12 to 13 hours every single day. And on the last day, it was the strongest as possible. So I think it proves if we can push through that I can't moment, no, it's not going to work, that you can get there. And unfortunately, you know, we talk about 40% with Goggins. I actually think a lot of people quit at 1%. They're sitting behind their office. And they're like, you know, one day I want to travel overseas or, you know, I hate this job. You know, I've got this great business idea, but immediately they're like, but I can't, like, I've got no money to start this business. Yeah. I've got no this. Like when I first set off my first world record in 2016, 2014, I sat with Jenna in my house, one bedroom apartment with a whiteboard. And we're like, I'm going to see if I can set the world record for the Explorers Grand Slam, something fewer than 50 people in the world have ever done. And I'm going to be the fastest climb Everest, climb Denali, climb Kilimanjaro, North Pole, South Pole, back to back. I hadn't climbed a bunch of mountains. It'd be pretty easy to say I can't. Oh, and by the way, we have no money money to do this. We have no platform. I have like 200 Instagram followers. Like, I mean, I have like <laughs> nothing, but we just sat there and we're like, no, instead of saying I can't, let's say I can. What's the first step to that? We literally get out our laptops and I'm like going to like, we're like, we want to build this big media campaign where lots of people follow and get press. Like we know nothing about, we have no background in this. So we Google, what's the difference between marketing and PR? I mean, we are literally asking <laughs> Google, like the most basic of all basic questions. Um, wow. But you know, we, we continue to say like let's get coffee with our one friend who knows something about this <laughs> we should probably get a website how does one build a website and it goes on and on like this how long ago did you start this journey so that that was 24 when we 2014 when we dreamed that up so the world record was to see if five I could, years ago yeah so to see if i could set the world record for something called the explorers grand slam so it's coming tallest mountain on each of the seven continents seven summits and before that had you done anything like that or had it just been athletics so i grew up in portland so i grew up like in the outdoors but like i mean to go climb everest at denali <laughs> so i'm like no like the short answer is i mean i climbed a few mountains you know it's not like i'd never been in the snow before i'd worn crampons i it's like i had not zero experience but like not even close to the experience that you would think one would need to do that and to just break world records right. doing not just do not it just but do like it. be the fastest yeah. person to ever complete it you know like i said it ended up being 139 days straight through to climb all those mountains didn't you know um i think we had a clip up a second ago of something on everest but uh but yeah i mean to do to do all of that it started from this place of not of, 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 of believing I can. And then, you know, it's, again, it's fun to talk about the epic adventure, but for me, it's actually fun to talk about what happened behind the scenes of that because what actually happened, like people 
you know, applaud our success now. This is me. This in, is you in walking. Everest, walking across a ladder that's, you know, about 300 foot hole and crevasse uh, on the other side of it that you have to go through to on your way up the uh, the Mount Everest climbing route. And so your crampons are clicking on the, on the and you're hooking them on the ladder as yeah. you walk across. And if you fall, you die. Yes. Okay, <laughs> great. So Fuck, that, man. Watch this again. <laughs> this is so awful. <laughs> It's so awful to look at because you're you're basically just walking this tightrope on. Let me hear it. Listen to that click, folks. I I implore you to go to the Instagram page so you get the full freak out. Cramp look how those they're tied together too. Those ladders. Yeah, tied just together. Rickety as could be. It's about three hundred foot cavern over there. Oh fuck all of this. Jesus. Uh, and you're looking down yeah. because you have a GoPro on. <laughs> And we cut the sound off at the end there, but I go at the very end, I go, whoop, because like there was 50 of those ladders, but I was cheering every fucking time oh I got across. So I was like, yep, one more down. Woo. Oh, oh. You did that 50 times? In the Kumbu, I actually go through that section a couple of times. It's a very dangerous section of the mountain. Um, but yeah, went about 50 of those ladders. So when you went through Everest, did you see the bodies? Um, so I fortunately didn't see any bodies up there. Fortunately um, or unfortunately? Fortunately. I mean, I, I mean, I'm not like trying to see dead bodies, right. you know, but they're, they're more prevalent on the climbing route on the north side. The day that I did summit, um, three people died, uh, on the day that I summited. Fuck. So when I, yeah, when I, so to set the, I mean, <laughs> to talk about Everest, I mean, for me is major setbacks. It was the eighth of nine expeditions in this sequence. So I'd done a hundred days of other expeditions leading up to Everest to do this Explorers Grand Slam world record. I'm trying to climb Everest. I'm exhausted from a hundred days. I just come from the North Pole before that Kilimanjaro, before that, you know, Elbers, all these other mountains. And then I make my summit push on Everest. I'm, I'm not climbing with a guide or anything. It's just myself and one Sherpa who I met climbing in Nepal the year previous when I was training for this. And so it's just the two of us and we climb up into camp four. So Everest has, you know, four camps. There's base camp and then there's camps progressively higher in the mountain so you can get your body acclimatized. And we get up into camp four. Have you read the book Into Thin Air by John Krakow or anything about Everest? No. Yeah, okay. There's a famous book that's written about it where 11 people die. And right in this moment, it's called the death zone where you enter above 26,000 feet. The human body basically can't survive for long, even with some supplemental oxygen and this massive snowstorm and windstorm blows in like kind of out of nowhere and we're trying to push for the summit it takes us two and a half hours just to set up our tent and get inside and we know like it's over like we're not we're not going to summit Everest like in this storm there's no way so we just survive the night wake up the next morning still getting pounded by this weather and actually have to climb back down the mountain so climb back down the mountain all the way to camp two and they're like and they're like well that's probably it like you don't usually like spend a night out in the death zone and like make a second attempt and you've already tried all these other mountains you're 100 plus days in this journey and i was like man i want to see if i can get back up there like and this other guy who i met on another team had some supplemental auction so i had to use some of my supplemental auction so my supply stores are limited now as well and so he uh he says to me hey i'm not going to go up i'm sick but if you get back up to camp four there's a couple bottles of oxygen that um you could use of mine if you if you somehow get back up there so sure enough pasang bodhi that's the name of the sherpa i was climbing with amazing climber himself we get back up to camp four in the death zone and uh we decide we're going to go for the summit we call back down to base camp what's the weather forecast and they're like well it's the exact same forecast we told you before it might hold in which case you'll be fine or it might turn into what you guys just survived and if you're not near your tent and you're up on the summit ridge of Everest, like it's going to get like pretty bad. And so we kind of go back and forth. Should we go for it? Shouldn't we go for it? We decide to go for it. But this crazy thing happens, which is you may have read about this or heard of this if you know much about Everest, but 
basically no one climbed Everest in 2014 or 15 because a huge avalanche killed 16 Sherpas in 2014. The, uh, the mountain was closed. And in 2015, there was a huge earthquake in Nepal that shut the climbing season down. So no one's even climbed the mountain in two years. But all of a sudden, because of these weather delays, I end up there and there's a hundred people going for the summit on the exact same day. So basically traffic jam on the worst fucking place to be in a traffic jam oh possible. God. So Pasang Bodhi and I, we go, okay, let's figure out how to climb this thing. And we leave camp. I, you know, there's a photo that I took for leaving camp. There's all these lights going up the side of the mountain. And it's because there's one rope that everyone works to put in. So everyone's using the same rope. And all of a sudden, we're behind 100 people. And if you stand there, wind chill minus 40 degrees, like we're going to get frostbite, like we're going to not be able to make it. And so Pasang Bodhi and I look at each other and we go, let's unclip from the rope. And so we actually decide to, uh -huh. <laughs> we actually decide to unclip oh. from the rope climb up all the way to the balcony from the the south call the death zone area i was mentioning before um up to about twenty eight thousand feet on rope because we actually think it's more dangerous to climb roped next to all the behind all the people than it is to risk a fall right you don't know those people you right, don't like, know what they're like and people are i mean you're on everest at twenty eight thousand feet and people are walking i mean one step per minute sometimes i mean it's it is brutal and so i mean i'm walking maybe two steps every 30 seconds but i'm like usain bolt like flying past these right. people yeah this, this is this is gives crazy. an example of like so you're in it like the world the worst place in the world to be you know in a in a traffic jam as you can see here from this photo i posted uh that day um but anyways i get up to this edge and it finally it's too steep it's too dangerous for us to be unclipped from the rope any longer we're like we're just gonna have to clip in and settle in behind you know we'd pass like 50 or 60 people so we're in much better place than ever i still have this one big puffy coat it's actually the same puffy coat i used in antarctica the big like michelin man coat and i'm like we're gonna slow down i better put this big jacket on and so i take my jacket off i undo my gloves real quick to put this big jacket on over me to warm myself up and i look down and my right hand is black like just black as black can be and i'm like holy shit, like telltale sign of frostbite. Like, oh my God, like the same thing. We've got school kids falling along. We've got family fun, the whole thing. And I'm like, oh my God, like I'm gonna lose my right hand. Is Jenna still gonna love me? You know, what's my family gonna think? And then I don't say anything to Pasang Bodhi. I jam my hand back in these big gloves and I go, okay. And I don't, I don't recommend this thought process, but I go, well, if I'm gonna lose my hand anyways, wouldn't it be cooler to lose my hand, but also have summited Everest? <laughs> So how black was it? I mean, it was black, like black, black. Like so, this yeah, can like of that coffee? Can of, yes. Like really? black. I mean, it was black. Did you take a picture of it? So, so the sun had, was just still, the sun was just below the horizon. So it was like dusk. And I mm -hmm. looked down at this point and then the sun comes up. So I jam my hand back in this glove and I don't say anything to Pasang Bodhi. I'm like, let's keep pushing for the summit. So we go for the next three hours and the whole time in mind, I'm like, oh my God, I'm such an idiot. Like I'm going to lose my hand, my hands frostbitten, this and that. And so we get up and we're about 30 minutes below Mount Everest summit. And it should be a beautiful moment for me. Like since a little kid, I dreamed like summiting Everest would be like the greatest accomplishment of my life. Oh my God. And I'm thinking like just in this dark place, but I also have taken a single photo basically and i'm like well i gotta get like a photo or a video of you know the famous mount everest summit so i pull up my gopro to shoot a video i shoot this short little video which kind of shows this crazy exposure that i'm on uh, like one side five thousand feet down into china on one side five thousand feet into palm this tiny little knife edge ridge and of course i have to adjust my gloves again yeah <laughs> this is from the summit um and uh i pull my i pull my gopro out and have to mess with my gloves put it back in and I look at my hand and I start going, waving my arms in the air, I go, Pasang Bodhi, my hand's back, my hand's back. And he's like, what are you doing? It just so happened that the, the 
glove warmers in my gloves, the chemical hand warmers had broken open and the charcoal and the copper filings of the chemical hand warmers had dyed my hand black. Oh, geez. And my hand was completely fine. Oh, God. And so, yeah, this clip here, if you play it from the top, it's me reaching the summit. That's Pasang Bodhi right there. But uh, So when... <laughs> I'm on the summit of Mount Everest Top of the world No words can describe <laughs> Wow So, yeah what, what, Did you experience any discomfort in your hands before? So, you're again, we're talking about a lot of this This podcast has been about mindset Which is one of my favorite topics And like, just like we said, you can convince yourself That the salt man is fixing your foot Yeah Like, I'm on Everest I'm at 28,000 feet my brain's not working very well. I oh. know that the weather's coming in bad, that people are going to get maybe frostbite based on the forecast. And I look down and I see my hands black. Where does my mind go? It's like, it's not like, oh, let me think right. about this. My hand warmer must have broken open and this. I'm like, my hand. And I, it was weird because I was like, I didn't feel my hand getting cold. My hand like feels right. fine, but I'm on Everest and my hand's black. That means, you know, in my brain, I'm like, I have frostbite. So it's just like, it's a weird thing where you can take your mind, like a lot of this, like, the positivity mm. of this. My mom went to the negative immediately. Like your hand's gone. It's frozen off. Like the oh, end. Um, so what happened to the people that died? Were they on the rope? Yeah. So unfortunately that day, the weather actually did get pretty bad later in the day. So fortunately I was able to get down before the weather got too bad. Um, but uh, the people that died that day, uh, one slipped and fell down these ropes over on Lotzi, which is the adjacent mountain, but sim- sharing some of the same ropes on the same route. Um, and then two people died from altitude sickness. So basically either running out of oxygen wow. up there and not being able to get back down to their tent. I think those people actually did get carried back down to their tents that night and then died in the tents that night. So um, it's called cerebral edema. Um, what which is basically your brain fills with fluid from being at the high altitude and not getting enough oxygen. And it's a, it's a killer up there. And, you know, one of the crazy things about being up there is, you know, you read about it, but you really can't rescue somebody very easily up there. I mean, to, to carry a human body down to rescue them is, is nearly impossible. And I kind of always thought in my mind, you know, if I saw somebody lying on the ground, like I would, you know, summon the energy to pick them up. And I was actually coming back from the summit and I was on the south summit, so just below the Everest summit, you know, at 28,800 feet or something like that. And this uh, Brazilian woman who I'd met in base camp um, named Tice, who I've, you know, become friends with here in Nepal for a couple months. You start talking to people, getting friends with other climbers, whatever. And I see her lying on the ground with her head, like, leaned back and her oxygen mask off to the side. And I'm like, oh, my God, like, this is the moment that I most feared. Like, somebody who I know is lying here on the side of the mountain. And I think to myself, I've got to pick her up. I've got to pick her up and somehow, like, carry her down this mountain. And I lean over to grab her and I try with all my might to do anything. And I realize I can't move her six inches. Like I'm completely exhausted. Muscles aren't working. Brain's not working. So I do the only thing I can think to do is I just wrap her in my arms and I say, Tice, like if you can hear me, it's Colin. You need to get up. You need to get your oxygen mask on. You need to start moving. Like, please get up. Please get up. No response. She was climbing with a Sherpa, another guide right next to her. And they were like, look, like we're having trouble with her oxygen mask, but we're going to fix it. Like it's going to be all right. And I was like, just kind of going through this intense moment. I'm like, what do I do? How can I help? And it's this weirdest 
you know, I, I'm not proud of it necessarily to say it, but like there was nothing I could do. Like I, it's just the most helpless feeling in the world where you want to help the common person, a friend. I mean, this person not be a friend, but if any human being is lying on the ground in the snow, you're like, I want to help this person get down this mountain. And I was just on so close to on my limit up there in the summit. There was nothing I could do. Fortunately, um, she was not one of the people that passed away that day. Her her team did get her oxygen mask on her, and she actually made it to the summit and back down safely. Wow! Um, so she went up. From she ended there? up going up from there, which to me is like another whole crazy part of that story. But it was an interesting lesson for me in like you know you hear these stories you can't move bodies up there there's nothing you can do to rescue and people have been criticized for not you know doing these crazy rescues when things have gone wrong up there but it really hit home for me like how how hard it would be to move somebody down that mountain from that altitude and so when you're up there you know unlike you know antarctica i was actually alone and everest like i said was pretty crowded day like you're essentially alone up there like if you can't keep putting one foot in front of the other up in the death zone there's not not a whole lot that you can do um so the three people that died up there did they leave them there um, I'm not sure with those specific people because sometimes they w- you can get a, like a large team of people to slowly lower people down. And, you know, in a weird way, it's actually easier to lower a dead body than it is to lower a live person because a dead body you don't have to worry about breaking bones and things right. like that if you're lowering someone over rocks and things like that. Yeah. So I actually believe those bodies are no longer there, but there are quite a few bodies, you know, still on the mountain and particularly the north side, the Chinese, so you can climb it from two sides, the Nepal side, which is more commonly climb where I climb, but the Tibet side, the Tibet side is known for having a lot more of the bodies still actually on the climbing route um, for sure. So, but for me on that, I mean, that day in, in a crazy way continues on because I got back down to camp four and I'm thinking I'm going to sleep for the night, rest, and come back down the mountain. It usually takes a few days to get back down the mountain. At this point, you know, I've only got one more mountain to climb to can finish my world record, the Explorer's Grand Slam. And I was about two months ahead of schedule. So if I had climbed Denali in the next two months, North America's tallest mountain up in Alaska, I was going to set this world this world record that I was. And so I called back home to Jenna and I was like, I made it. Like, I made it. And uh, earlier in the day when my hands had gotten frozen, I had actually had uh, uh, heated boot warmers. And so I had turned the heat in my boot warmers up as hot as possible. So I'm like, if my hand is frostbitten, what would my feet look like? So I t- cranked those up as hot as possible. And so Jenna's like, hey, like, how are you doing? Like, you all right? We've heard some you know, reports over social media that it's been a really hard day up there. Like, and I'm like, yeah, I'm all right. Like, no frostbite, no injuries. Like, I'm good. And I was like, well, actually, um, I, uh, I burned my feet. And she's like, oh, frostbite? Like, how bad is it? And I was like, no not frostbite i actually burned two like silver dollar circles in the bottoms of both of my feet from turning my boot warmers up too much and she's like wait let me get this straight like you climb everest you don't get frostbite but you burn yourself she was like you your feet fire like just like (laughs) it's a bad situation um but then she goes on and she was like she literally said the next thing she said to me, I will literally never forget in my life. But she goes, so um, you're in your tent, right? You took your boots off and everything. You're curled up in there. I'm like, yeah. And she's like, well, uh, I actually need you to put your boots back on. And I'm like, excuse me? Like, I just, what? Like, she was like, yeah, so we've been doing some calculating back home. And it just so happens that if you can get to the summit of Denali in the next uh, a week, you can set not one, but two world records. And I was like, well, that sounds nice, but like I'm on the summit of, uh, below the summit of Everest. How the hell is that going to work? She's like, okay, put your boots back on down now. Climb all the way back to base camp. There's no time for you to sleep, but a helicopter is going to take you to Kathmandu. No time for a hotel, no time for a shower, but an evening flight is going to take you to Dubai, to Seattle, to Anchorage. And instead of having three weeks to climb Denali, you'll have three days. But if you can do all of that, you'll set another world record. Like, ready, go. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, so I was in disbelief, but uh, knowing better than to uh, disobey not only my amazing wife, but the the planner and logistics expert in running the background and all this, I sure enough put my boots back on, wiped the slate clean and found myself, um, you know, just a hundred hours after standing on the summit of Everest, I found myself over in Alaska trying to push up to the summit to, uh, to try to set the two world records and not just the one. Whoa. Now, what kind of recovery does your body need when you exert yourself like that? Like, yeah, climbing Everest, I would think that your bodies must you had to be in some kind of state of shock or I mean completely there's there's some clips of me on Denali in those next few days where I'm just absolutely trash like I'm like like barely eyes open like I'm gonna try to push for the summit I'm gonna this the one benefit I'll say there is one most of it's not a benefit but I'll, I'll keep it in the positive the one benefit is usually in the high altitude mountaineering you need to acclimatize so your body creates more red blood cells when you go up into the thinner air to allow you to breathe oxygen better at the higher altitudes a mountain like Denali normally takes three weeks to climb because you're coming from sea level and to get up to 20,000 feet you can't just get dropped off there if you or I right now got dropped off on the summit of Denali we would pass out in a matter of minutes right but because I'm coming from Everest at 29,000 feet it puts Denali into perspective not from a technical mountaineering standpoint because it's still a very dangerous and very challenging mountain in a lot of ways a harder mountain to climb than Everest technically but 20,000 feet, my body can handle the rapid ascent a little bit better if I can muster the energy to do it. The physiology of my body is actually in a better place to climb higher, faster, if that makes sense. No, it does make sense, but man. <laughs> so you're, when you're done with this, what? how long did it take you to just feel like a normal person again? Yeah, so I was on Denali. I ended up summiting in, in three days and setting. So the Explorers Grand Slam was the seven summits plus the North and South Pole, but the second world record was just the seven summits by themselves. So even though I went to the poles, I still set the speed record for the seven summits as well. So seven summits, 131 days, and the Explorers Grand Slam, 139. And then I returned um, to Alaska and then home to Portland. And honestly, it was a good six months until I felt normal again, at oh. least. Um, and I'm, I'm definitely, like I said, I'm only about five weeks out from Antarctica right now and I I haven't really taken a lot of rest or recovery I've been on the road still doing various things and uh, you know I'm nowhere near recovered it's going to take a long time to get back so these these exertions I love them I love pushing my body but you know the the cycle of high performance is also knowing how to recover recover well good nutrition all that and it takes a long time that one took six months and I would imagine this Antarctica recovery is going to take a long time as well now when you say it took six months are you, are you monitoring your physiological levels what are you monitoring and how do you find out like where you're at yeah, so I started to do a lot of blood work actually early on in my triathlon career. I, um, you know, actually early on in my professional triathlon career, I mentioned I moved to Australia not long after, you know, turning pro and coming out of the gate with this win. And I had the opportunity to go train with some of the best triathletes in the world. There's actually, you know, a couple of world champions, a group of 15 of us, a couple of world champions, so female Ironman world champion, uh, a couple Olympic medalists. I mean, some of the top people in the world. And I'm this like up and coming professional triathlete. And I think it's so cool that I'm like training with the best guys. I mean, you know, it'd be like, you know, a, a guy that just gets into the UFC and all of a sudden he's training with, the, you know, the, the top contenders, the title guys. And like, I wanted to really roll hard with them. And so I was training super hard to try to keep up with the guys, the best guys. And I had an amazing month and then I completely fell apart because their level of training were true world-class level and I'm starting out was just too much for me. And so mm. it crashed my entire system. My testosterone um, dropped to that level of a 90-year-old man. I mean, I was like, <sighs> had no testosterone on my body and, you know, went through some serious overtraining, which as you know, like it, yeah. <laughs> that's no joke. Um, learned that lesson the hard way. 
And that was one of the you know darkest moments of my athletic career. But it's also been a net benefit for me as I've gone. You know that was back in you know 2011 or whatever. And these pro- these world record projects have been in the last couple of years. And so I learned from that. You know taking it way too much and not learning how to recover to implementing things in my. So your question about what did I monitor? You know resting heart rate is one that I monitored a lot. Heart rate variability as well, um, as well as bl- certain blood levels, of course, around the you know, whole endocrine system, the the testosterone levels, the you know different hormones levels and things like that so coming back I do blood work ahead of time, then come back just with standard process with the nutrition company. They did all this blood work on me. So when I left Antarctica, before flying home, before, you know, next place I had to go actually was to New York to do the Today Show, which was a whole weird thing after being alone in Antarctica to have those type of TV cameras in your face. That's a whole other like weird Twilight Zone yeah. moment. But before I even did that, I flew to Charlotte where their Nutrition Innovation Center is and did all my blood work. And so we can have basically this longitudinal study of my blood work to understand it. And so I monitor all that and figure out what I'm deficient in, what I need, where my heart rate's at, um, and uh, you know, basically a lot of inflammation in my body and needing to kind of rid my body of that and fully recover. So when you're coming back from all these summits and all these, this time at altitude, what has actually happened to your body that causes you to be really depleted for six months like what what's what's happening other than the fact that you were at high altitude low oxygen like what's taking place so one of the things that happens at high altitude that you don't really think about too much which is your body's not getting so the air actually has just as much oxygen in it as it does at sea level but the air is less dense so that means as you breathe in the air you're literally getting less oxygen into your blood it's less dense it's less dense so it's so less the, nitrogen in it's it? the pressure changes oh. right so at the high altitude it's actually the pressure that's changing so it's not less oxygen there's just as much oxygen but in a less dense form so in the same volume of breath you're getting less actual o2 into your blood and what are you at getting? higher altitude i guess it's uh carbon dioxide is that right mm. yeah i'm not a doctor like okay. i said <laughs> All I know is you're getting less oxygen. Um, You're getting less oxygen in your body. So what ends up happening is your muscles, of course, need oxygen to perform. So normally if I'm in, you know, when I'm in my most elite physical shape, you know, I have resting heart rate during a professional triathlon career of like 35 getting out of bed, you know, 38, low enough that if you weren't a professional athlete and you went to a doctor with a heart rate of 35, they'd be like, oh my God, like you're going to die. There's something wrong with you. But like, that's also a, you know, a key marker of, you know, elite health performance. You know that, of course. Um, But uh, what happens is, your body can't, your body's getting so little oxygen, even as your blood is acclimatizing, you're sleeping with a resting heart rate at altitude on Everest at like 90, 100 beats per minute. So, you know, that's pretty elevated heart rate 24 hours a day. And for, in my mm. case, for 139 days straight. So essentially you're just, your heart is just like, even at rest. And so what that does to your body in terms of, you know, it throws your hormones around it. Obviously you lose body weight, body fat, body composition changes, all of those things really shift and happen uh, in a pretty intense way. So coming back, like actually just getting your heart rate back down, getting your, you know, a parasympathetic nervous system to just relax and, and, and stress-free. And, and all that kind of stuff it, it takes a while for sure so what do you do to help yourself recover when you come back because there's specific kinds of food that you eat or supplements that you take yeah. um you know i'll start there's a few different things that i i find to be to work well one sleep i mean i think that sleep in our culture in general is really underrated i think you know if you 
go in the corporate world and everyone's like, I pulled this all night or I work, yeah. you know, 120 hours a week. I this, I that or whatever. Like, you know, I'm telling you a story about pushing through the night and going 32 hours straight. There's a time and a place for big pushes without sleep. But like we are not built to do that sustainably um, in any way, shape or form. So in my training, when I'm training for these things, I prioritize sleep. I prioritize taking a nap. The same thing when I'm recovering. So really making sure I get that sleep. It's most for me, the most natural way to recover. On top of that, soft tissue work. I'm a huge believer in, in massage um, as well as chiropractor. Uh, I've been going to a chiropractor since I was a little kid. And to me, that makes a big difference just to have everything in alignment, everything kind of, you know, working well, uh, efficiently in my body. Um, and then, yeah, supplements, you know, definitely reducing inflammation. So for me, gut health is huge. Um, so getting those probiotics, getting the right stuff in, you know, it's easy to have, you know, that leaky gut or things where you're not getting the nutrition absorbed, absorbed properly. And I think we all in, in various states, you know, you deal with that, you know, the standard American diet for sure leads mm. to that for a lot of people. Um, so getting that nutrition clean and right. Um, so yeah, sleep, rest, recovery, nutrition. Um, and then, you know, I've definitely been uh, taking a lot of supplements through my life. I, I err more towards the whole food supplements these days, but I find, you know, things like turmeric that really reduce inflammation um, and, uh, you know, magnesium definitely helps a lot. So there's a, a few things that I, that I take daily, but uh, really I think sleep and, and a clean diet will goes a long way. Um, I've, you know, messed with some cryo before. I, I find that to be, be pretty good. I didn't do that a lot, but I've done that in the last couple of years a bit. So various things. Um, but yeah, for me, sleep, diet, nutrition is, is the, the key to recovery. And what kind of foods do you do? You, when you say eating clean, do, yeah. you, do you have a, like a um, particular way of eating? I'm, uh, I'm recently, uh, doing more of a pescatarian diet. So I, I've mostly cut out meat, although that's very, oh, I was raised that way. My parents have been vegetarians forever. Um, well, I should say pescatarian. So they, they eat some fish, um, but no, you know, no chicken, no beef, none of that. Um, for me, I've actually, even in Antarctica, there was some, uh, in my freeze dried meals, there was, you know, beef and, and chicken and stuff like that. So it's not something I've oh, cut so out Oh, so you brought freeze dried meals as well as bringing those The bars? column bars was the main thing, but at every dinner I had one freeze dried meal at the end of the day that was so an extra thousand calories. A mountain house. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, it was a company. It was Alpine Air, but same thing as yeah. a mountain house, basically. Okay. Um, so it was rice, noodles mixed with you know chicken or beef. But um, when I say eating clean, I mostly mean just like eating whole food stuff, like not mm. eating, not eating processed. It's processed crap, refined sugars, that kind of stuff. I mean, I'm I'm a normal human being, so I'm guilty as, of that as anyone from time to time of just grabbing the easiest, closest thing. Mm -hmm. um, but like I said, my dad, my dad's an organic farmer. My mom, my stepdad started a chain of natural foods grocery stores when I was a kid. So I was really raised around you know you know in the, in the sort of hippie co-op days of, of the natural foods movement which of course now with you know amazon owning whole foods has tipped right. a lot more to the mainstream um but uh you know that was what i was raised around and you know eating you know quinoa rice kale you know that those kinds of things Healthy you know things. beans yeah. you know whole food nutrition has, has gone a long way for me particularly when i need to recover now do you mess with cbd at all um, it's not something I've I've done a lot of. Uh, I hear amazing things. Um, I'm definitely not opposed to it at all. Uh, but I uh, I haven't I haven't tried it. What, what's your experience been with that? I've been experimenting with it for the last couple of years. It has a pretty profound effect on, on alleviating soreness, especially joint soreness. Yeah. and uh, it also makes you feel good. It, like the 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 word is that it, it alleviates anxiety, which I don't suffer a lot of, but yeah. it just. It makes me feel relaxed. Did you, know? you do you take it orally or do you use it yeah. topically? I take a like a dropper. Okay. It's like a dropper. I take like whatever they say to take. I take like five times more than that. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> do you take it at night? Like during... I take it during the morning and I take it at night as well. Okay. I just always feel like I'm 
running my body at red line yeah. and running my brain at red line so yeah. much. So whatever they say you need, I just double it yeah. Yeah. for almost everything. And do you feel like, obviously it doesn't have the THC effects of it, but do you yeah. feel like in it? No. No, nothing. No, clear, nothing. Clear headed, clear mind. Yeah. And my THC tolerance is so high. Sure. It, it doesn't really. Uh, right. But some forms of it. Uh, have a small amount of THC and I think there may be some sort of synergistic effect that that happens with the THC combined with the CBD that helps people even more because a lot of people uh, that have pain particularly chronic pain they experience a lot of relief from THC Mm. from just smoking it or vaporizing it or using edibles so I think that the uh, the CBD with a little bit of THC might have uh, a better effect. You, a lot of fighters say that. Sure. No, I'm, I'm interested in trying the CBD for sure. Something I should definitely try. Do you find that it gives you like a sustain, like is it relief when it's in your body, like a masking relief? Or do you feel like it actually is like curing the root cause of that inflammation or anxiety? I don't think it's masking at all. I think it's alleviating um, yeah. the inflammation. It's just, it's a very healthy thing for your body to eat. It's, well, you know, obviously uh, there's a bunch of different oils that will alleviate inflammation. Inflammation, sure. different essential fatty acids and fish oils are very good for inflammation. I think anything that you can take that helps your body mitigate inflammation. Inflammation yeah. seems to be a gigantic problem, not with just not with pain, just with pain. But I think also with anxiety. I think it's it's entirely possible that feelings of discomfort, you know, like. Like when you when you see people that are anxious, do you, you they often look bloated to me. They often yeah. look like Ugh. They, I think it's just an overall sense of unwellness, you know. And I think that a poor diet exacerbates that, and a good diet can alleviate some of those symptoms. And I think that CBD is a big part of that. A hundred percent. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm interested to try that for sure. I've definitely that inflammation even for me mm-hmm. coming back from Antarctica in this quarter of recovery phase what's weird is like you saw how lean I got then mm-hmm. but my body I think because it was so depleted of food source is now actually almost trying to put fat back on sure. my body of like of kind of storing that so actually my body composition feels weird to me right now because my body's like just like trying to figure out where the hell I'm at and I think a lot of that comes from that chronic inflammation mm-hmm. and certainly just those elevated cortisol levels of just being so jacked up and redlined like you said just like so wired yeah. so finding ways to kind of you know mitigate that i think is is, is, is crucial I, yeah. I should try it what what form would you recommend trying the dropper form yeah like that? i like the dry i like it because like you, there's uh, gel tabs are fine but i think it's unnecessary your body's absorbing that the coat sure. the cover just go you know, the, yeah, the stuff the, just go right to the oil yeah. i just think it's the best way to do it but i'm a, I'm a big fan of curcumin and turmeric yeah. as well i think those are really good for, have you tried ashwagandha or any of the like the mushroom no. the mushroom teas well, and t- stuff I like that i do take this stuff actually that i have right here uh, this wasn't a plant uh, lion's mane oh, yeah. mushroom elixir yeah. i love this stuff yeah yeah i take this uh all the time i make a tea out of this yeah, it's really I've, nice i've messed with like the cordyceps and the uh mm-hmm. the ashwagandha as well yeah. to kind of reduce some of the, the cortisol like a emotional or uh, hormonal balances type of stuff cordyceps is fantastic too for endurance yes 100 percent. yeah we yeah. have a pro on it we have an on it product called shroom tech sport that has cordyceps uh, b vitamins and a bunch of adaptogens it really cool. uh, really has a big impact on um, me in terms of like how f- hard i can push in the gym i take it about an hour or so before Beforehand. i work out yeah yeah let your body absorb it and it just it just really has a real effect and it doesn't give me a, a jittery thing either yeah 
it just gives me more energy. Just kind of take know? it an hour before, kind of mm-hmm. primes your body for yeah. that. More oxygen uptake. Is that kind of the, yeah. the idea behind cordyceps? That's what I've been told anyways. Yeah, they, they, it came out of uh, high-altitude herders. They noticed that oh, when, really? they're, yeah, when they're, the cattle were eating certain mushrooms, they had more energy. Huh. And so then they, that's, that's how they started experimenting with this stuff. They actually grow it on caterpillars. What? Yeah. How does that so work? So strange, man. See if you can find it. Cordyceps mushrooms grown on caterpillars. I'm picturing like this room of caterpillars with like carrying around mushrooms on their back or something. Uh, yeah, like, it's, it's real freaky. <laughs> it's real freaky. But apparently the way they farm it, that's the way they farm it. They actually grow it on caterpillars. Huh. That's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. What, fucking what weird. It's expensive shit. <laughs> yeah. But like there it is. Oh, wow. Like how fucking strange. So those... At the bottom there, that's the caterpillars, and it's mm-hmm. a mushroom growing out of their heads yep. or something like, I'm like that. Thank you. I'll take that. And they snip that shit off the caterpillars. Holy shit. That's yeah. crazy. <laughs> Fucking weird, man. Yeah. Well, uh, apparently it works. Well, it does. Yeah. It's, you know, there's so many benefits. I mean, Paul Stamets, who's been on the podcast before, and I can't wait to get him back on again, but he's a mycologist. And mm. it was one of the best podcasts that I've ever done in terms of like really explaining the benefits of different fungi mm-hmm. and different mushrooms and how many different nutritional benefits you can derive from them. I mean, I, I can't agree more. Just the, 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 the whole food nutrition mm-hmm. from many different levels, yeah. whether it's mushrooms, the, you know, turmeric, these mm-hmm. full plant derivatives. I mean, to me, they go, they go a long way in their pure form for sure. Yeah. What about, what, what do you drink? Do you drink a lot of water? Do you drink fruit juices, vegetable juices? Um, mostly, mostly water to be perfectly mm-hmm. honest. Um, I, I do usually start the day with, um, a smoothie uh, of some kind. So usually it's got, it's got fruit in it. Um, obviously fruit. Another thing I put in there is I've been using this stuff that uh, it's a, actually the company standard process is just coming out with it, but they let me try it ahead of time. It's kind of like this slow release glucose. So it's a protein powder, but instead of giving you that glucose spike, like you would from a refined sugar or something like that, it's kind of a long burn, long chain glucose. Um, I don't know the full chemistry of that, but I find it makes a big difference rather than kind of just getting that sugar spike early in the day. It actually kind of gives a slow release of energy. And I was using, that was actually in the column bars as well. And I really like that, particularly for endurance, because, you know, if you start like taking the, the, the goo packets or something like mm. that, you get that spike of a hundred calories, you get that like quick, like boom, burst of energy replies, replenishes your glucose stores. But this, I feel like just is a much slower, cleaner burn. Um, and it lasts a longer for definitely, you know, for, for anaerobic stuff. I mean, maybe you need kind of that more explosive power or whatever you know different mm-hmm. things for that but for some of the like low heart rate zone one zone two like long grinding type of stuff that i do in the mountains or pulling this sled or whatever i find it's really good for stuff like that now what scares me about people like you is how old are you now 33 okay you're very young <laughs> i'll take that this is this is what i'm worried <laughs> i'm worried that you've already done so much crazy shit that you have to push past the crazy shit you've already done and yeah. you've already been on Everest. It sounds like you were kind of like you weren't on death's door, but you opened the front gate. Yeah. yeah. You open the front gate. You're on the lawn. Yeah. Yeah. You're on death's lawn. Sure. You know, <laughs> right? no, absolutely. I mean, like yeah. I said, the people were literally died that day. Um, you know, it's what are you going to try to do next? This well, is this is the question. Like, yeah. do you have some crazy shit in your head right now? You're like, okay, now I'm going to the moon with a fucking balloon. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. It's twofold. It's an interesting intersection. I appreciate that that you call me call me young. I'll, I'll take that all day long. Well, I'm but, 51, sure. so you are young sure. to me. But I guess in terms of in, in athlete terms, yeah. right? You know, you're I, in the, the kind of, you're in the the peak. Yeah, the peak for endurance athletes, and it's fun to be here. But I also think it's a moment in time where uh, a little bit of a little bit. I'll 
I'll say. I won't give myself too much credit, but a little bit of wisdom meets also athletic performance. Mm. A moment in time yeah. where I've had enough experience, enough setbacks, ups and downs, and success, of course, with the world records and things I have, but to really take stock of what's important to me. And what right. I've realized more and more is I'm super curious about pushing the limits of my own potential. 100%. We've talked about that. I love that. But I actually don't think of myself so much as a risk taker or an adrenaline junkie. When Get I think of, the I'm serious, fuck man. Out I mean, of here. I'm not just bullshitting <laughs> you. Like, I really, when I think about it, like, these things are, are really are methodical. Yes, they're thought out. You know, they're, they're practiced. They're, they're in the, and not to say there's not risk. You saw me trying to set up my tent. That tent flies away. Like, I'm screwed. Like, I'm in a bad way. Um, what would you do? Would you run after it? I mean, you no, no chance you're catching up to that fuck. thing. That thing is gone. Um, yeah. Yeah, you, you know, you hit the you hit the ejector button on the call the plane and hope they can find you type of thing. And even that's like in a storm like that, unlikely they're going to get there. But Ooh. for me, what I'm honestly most excited about next, um, yes, I have some other projects that I'm marinating in my mind. Do I have other expeditions? Sure, I haven't. I haven't. Uh, they're not fully crystallized enough to announce right here, unfortunately. But um, you know, I've got some ideas. But more so, like I'm excited about you know sharing what I've learned. Like I said, that wisdom meets high performance of actually having an ability. Now, like I said, I, when I started this, I had you know, my friends following me on Instagram and now I'm starting to have ability to share the story. People are asking for me to, you know, take interviews. I'm, I'm writing a book right now. Lots of my learnings going into that kind of stuff of really, really having an ability to pass this on. Because for me, as fun as it is for me to push my own limits, like I, what really inspires me, what really fires me up is when, when I get emails or notes from people like, hey man, I watched you cross Antarctica. I haven't been to the gym in five years and like I've gone every single day since then <laughs> or I'm trail running now. Or like wow. I started that business I never said I was going to start or whatever. And so having an ability to, to have a moment in time when I can share some of my learnings, you know, with the world in meaningful different contents, that's, that really excites me. You know, I love the opportunity to do that, but man, like for sure, there, there's some other, there's some other events on the horizon as well, but, uh, but yeah, it's not just about one upping the next thing. I think that that's a, uh, a losing proposition in the long run of always trying to do the bigger, badder, craziest thing. Cause when the stakes are, like you said, the razor's line between life and death, you keep one upping yourself enough, you know, you don't, you don't make it to the end of a, a long life unfortunately and i'm not trying to have that be the end well it sounds like i mean you've already broken world records you've you you you're in this weird place where you've accomplished so much that in order to accomplish other things they if you're going to take it to the next level it really has to be truly life-threatening. <laughs> Do you have any recommendations? Do you want to come on the next quit, one with quit me? Quit now. <laughs> Say, uh, I'm moving to the next stage of life that doesn't involve risking your uh, life. I don't know. You seem like a nice guy. I don't want anything to happen to you. Oh, give, give me give me some wisdom. You've got a couple, almost a couple decades Oof. on me. If you if you were whispering in the ear of your 33-year-old self, how about this? You know, you've, you've had an interesting path. If you're whispering in the ear of your 33 self, what would be some advice that you would give yourself that you'd be happy that you lived out over the next 20 years? Well, I mean, obviously life experience, when you have life experience, learn those lessons, become a better person, be better at communicating, be better at everything you do. Mm -hmm. But the problem with what you're doing, and it's not a problem, but in, in this context, is that you're pushing these incredible endurance records in nature, and particularly in cold weather. And this is what's stunning about these things is that you're risking your life. It's not that it's just difficult. Like running in ultra marathon is incredibly difficult, right? For sure. But what you're doing is not just incredibly difficult. You're doing it in these incredibly harsh environments and particularly in Antarctica, you don't have any relief. There's nothing no one's going to help you. Like you said your tent blows away, you like you might very well be fucked. Yes. Right? Very I don't, much. I don't no, know. Wait, you are. Pretty yeah. Much. <laughs> right. Well, I don't know what you could do that would one up that 
This is the problem is like your your one up margin of error is you're in this very strange sort of stratosphere yeah. of one upitude. Maybe maybe it's um you know, we take a page out of the Bruce Springsteen Glory Days song and just, you know, kick my kick my feet up and talk about the glory days for the rest of the time. Well, you <laughs> don't kidding. have to do that. But, but the thing is, <laughs> I mean, don't listen to me, man. Do whatever you want to do. Obviously, you're going to. You're not going to listen to me. But you could do, you could apply this sort of mental fortitude that you've demonstrated and this ability to push through things. You could apply it to anything. Yeah. It doesn't have to be these physical feats of risking death and in frigid cold temperatures in the middle of the fucking nowhere or literally at the bottom of the planet earth yeah no and that's to me that's actually that's why it's exciting because for me yes are there some other physical expressions that i want to have in the world for sure and i have some ideas like i said but and it's not necessarily trying to one-up the next thing but it's also why it's exciting to me the lessons that i try to learn that i try to share with other people like you said are universal lessons but they also if i revert them back to my own self are also universal lessons in my own life so like you said it's like hey like what's the next thing i'm super passionate about if you i have the confidence to sit with a whiteboard with no money no resources no background an incredibly supportive fiance at the time now wife who's like down to like ride or die with me and go into this with me like and we created what we did we did something that people literally wrote about and said this is impossible people have died trying this you can't do this and we've achieved it it gives me confidence not that i can do some other crazy physical thing but it gives me confidence like cool like i want to start a i want to start a business that makes millions of dollars like cool like let's figure out how to do that let's let's do the equivalent of writing into google what's the difference between pr and marketing you know like yeah let's do that so you know as i as I, you know, do a ton of public speaking now, write this book, the things are things I'm doing. That's super fun to share those with the world. So I'm having a lot of fun doing that and actually sharing the universal truths and the wisdom that I've learned that I think can be applied different ways. But it also goes to now I get to have the fun of applying those in all of those other different ways of my life. And so, you know, for me, I think that the 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 future is bright, particularly if I don't I don't really think of myself as this endemic core outdoor athlete. It's very easy to put me in that box. It's very easy to say like cool. So you climb mountains, you're a mountain climber. It's like, but four years ago, I'd never really climbed mountains, but I happened to do something in mountains. Well, I've never been to the polar region. That's why this British guy was looking at me like, oh, ha, 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 young boy, I've spent all this time in Antarctica. You'll never survive this. And like, not only did I survive it, but like, I finished first. Like, I beat him. But How I'm many not- days did you beat him by? Two and a half days. Ha, ha. <laughs> um, so, but like, I'm not sitting here going like, you know, I'm fascinated by Antarctica. Would I like to go back someday? Absolutely. But I'm not like Colin O'Brady, the polar explorer only. You know, it's right. like, what else can I explore that actually presses me? I mean, I, I love to learn. I love to learn about the mind, explore that. Um, there's so many different ways to express that, that I'm just excited of what the future holds in lots of different verticals. Well, listen, I think you could fucking do anything. I think it's very clear what you've already accomplished. You could literally do anything you want, but I want to, I want to see you live. Yeah, me too. What about, how about this? How about you break some crazy uh, endurance running feats? How about that? Break some ultra marathon feats. Because it feels a little bit safer. Yes. Yes. (laughs) The worst thing's going to happen. You're going to get really fucking tired, but but you could live. Maybe, maybe the next thing is, I mean, maybe I'm not the funniest guy in the world, but what do you think about comedy? I mean, I know that's a big piece, you know, should I get back out there on the stage? Listen, if you can communicate and you can make people laugh, you can make a group of people laugh. You could do stand up comedy. It's just a matter of taking 
taking steps and figuring it out and writing stuff out. And I mean, you've got a lot of fucking stories. For sure. You know? I mean, just how about getting on stage in front of people and telling people that you're the first person to cross Antarctica on <laughs> I, foot, 52 days. Like, what in the fuck? I, I do a lot of that. I enjoy that. I, I love public speaking. I do a lot of that. Corporations, well, kids, everything. But that's, that's too fun. easy. Well, trust but, me, I do it. No, you could do that. It's fun. No, yeah. I have to say, I got to give a shout out. You definitely don't remember this, but I actually have met you once before about seven years ago in a tiny little comedy club. You did a bit um, out in Portland, a small little venue. I'm sure you do way bigger venues that, now. Um, it's called Helium. Like Helium. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That place is great. And uh, at the time, it was funny. I was thinking about it when I was driving over. I was like, what was this bit? And you were doing this bit about, hey there, Delilah. Oh, you met, was that like a damn, thing? Damn, that's a long time ago. <laughs> wow. Uh, that's what I most remember. But the reason I was there actually was um, when I first started training for triathlon uh, professionally, I started training with this guy um, named Phil Claude, who was training a couple of UFC fighters at the time. You remember this guy named Mike Pierce who fought? Yes, that? sure. Yeah. yeah. Local He's guy. He's a Portland for, for, guy yeah, too, Yeah, Portland right? guy yeah. as well. And so I didn't know a lot about MMA. I still certainly am not as well versed as you are, but I got in this gym. My coach was like, hey, you're going to start training with these MMA guys. And I was like, you know, what? Like I'm a skinny little triathlete. These guys are like, you know, brawlers. But I was, man, what was I impressed? Like talk about a multi-sport, true multi-sport, right? Yeah. Like all the different disciplines. I don't have to tell you this, obviously, but I was blown away by how strong they were. We became good buddies. And Mike said to me, he was like, hey man, I'm going to this comedy show. This guy named Joe Rogan's going to be doing his comedy. Come uh, listen to him. So, uh, I, you know, you made me laugh back then. So uh, mad respect. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a fun, fun to see into that world a little bit. Well, thanks, man. I guarantee you, you could do that. But, <laughs> but if you still want to do endurance things, like, please do something where you're not going to die. That's all. Re- <laughs> that's just my request. You know, I've made it back here safe and sound. So, yeah, the goal, I mean, like I said, the goal is not to keep one up in myself. Right. I mean, I think that's... Uh, but is un- that part of the danger of this kind of endeavor? Because I mean, you, you really have one-upped. I mean, you've done some crazy one-upping, man. For sure. Like I said, I think that it... if. If I only thought of myself as a professional athlete and that was my identity was tied up in that, I think Mm -hmm. we see that across the spectrum of professional athletes in general um, of people just going, hey, I'm a pro athlete. And the second I'm not, even if they banked millions of dollars as an NBA player or something like that, their whole identity disappears with the feat of athleticism. I read a really interesting article today that I was really compelled by, actually, which was a story about Kevin Durant that was on ESPN.com this morning. And it's about him and his business manager and a couple other guys that have kind of gotten around him and like, dude, you're like one of the best you know basketball players in the world mvp but he's already thinking about all the various things that he's doing you know in his life and what i loved about that article is they were like you know sports center back in the day used to be guys you know hitting home runs dunking basketballs which of course it still is that but they'll intersperse that with like kevin durant just made a you know venture investment in this company or like they're growing this watermelon you know water brand or they're this or that and Mm -hmm. so i think sports particularly with the growth of social media with storytelling with media with content with all the other ways we can share the insights which isn't just the game which isn't just me in the arena pulling the sled but it's actually a way to connect with people whether that's in the sense of kevin durant making incredible venture investments in companies or that's with storytelling that actually reaches you know universal truths with people you know i've got you know a single mother from nebraska reaching out to me and saying like hey i don't care about mountains or the outdoors but like i'm going through some hard stuff like in the middle of the country being a single mother and your story connects with me thank you for giving me the inspiration to keep pushing forward so for me it extends beyond just this athlete in this arena because we have all these other ways to storytell, to create content, to you know, and be involved in businesses and things like that. So that's where my mind's at next. It hasn't fully crystallized into the most concrete of plans, but the ability to explore all these different mediums and just having sort of the sports be the catalyst for growth in that way is what I'm really passionate about. 
That's awesome, man. And uh, whatever your plans are, I have 100% confidence in you. You're an inspiration, man. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks, brother. Really appreciate it, man. And tell everybody your Instagram, how to get a hold of you on social media. Yeah, follow along. It's just my name, at Colin O'Brady. Also, my website is just my name, colinobrady.com. Got a list on there. Like I said, I'm working on a book. There's lots of uh, juicy details that I haven't shared yet. So if you're interested in that, you know, pop your email address in there. We'll keep you posted when that comes out next year. But at Colin O'Brady or Colin O'Brady.com, come uh, come say hi. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah.